Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1430 to 1443. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1430. Story number one. Complete Acquisition and Utilization. Written by Ark Demon Karinsky. We had fought them for as long as we could remember. Certainly, longer than any of our living members had existed. We fought them because they were there. Because everything that exists belongs to us. Exists for our use. They disagreed, and we removed them for it. They were insignificant as all the rest we had removed or used up. We took the first subnodes from them when we needed them. Barely any effort worth noting. We assumed that they had learned their place in things when their futile attempts to reclaim the system stopped before we had finished there. Most interlopers take a few rounds of acquisition to realize that there is nothing before us. Then they flee when we eventually encounter them again once we are down to the core of their resource node. Sometimes, when they are contracted like that, they can slow us down in our acquisition of systems. Usually, though, it's more because they are sending so much towards us that it's simply more efficient to process those materials for our use. Eventually, we need more than they are sending, and we take those subnodes too. We have yet to encounter an interloper species outside of its origin resource node until these. We weren't sure if they developed into node travel systems, but prevailing thought is that if they did progress to that point, they had learned their place and left existence and its resource nodes to us, as is appropriate. Until these, uh, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. After we moved to acquire and utilize the next subnodes, we discovered why they'd ceased to annoy us in their initial subnodes. They had sought to prevent our acquisition of the next subnodes. We considered it to be nothing of significance, though the detonation of the subnode core did slow down our harvesting, as everything had been scattered into constituent particles. With the benefit of consideration from nature perspective, it is now obvious that we would end up in the situation we are finding ourselves in. Before we encountered him, a resource node could be acquired and utilized in its entirety, on average, in just over three quarters of its initial rotation duration, plus or minus a quarter rotation depending on its size. Directly due to their interference, our acquisition of the entire node was pushed to one and a half rotations. Full utilization of the node took another half a rotation. This was unheard of since our origin node had been fully utilized. The next node took four and a half rotations for acquisition, two rotations to complete utilization. They had predicted where our next choice for node harvesting would be and prepared it for our arrival. The experience caused a bit of cultural renaissance for us. We had finally encountered something that caused us to change our ways. Instead of simply acquiring and utilizing a subnode as we needed resources, we had to plan for our future needs due to the new time it took to acquire and then utilize the subnode. We actually had to put effort into things, re-remembering concepts from our origin that we had put away. 
devices and tools that we considered to have long ago risen beyond. They never stopped us, though. Just slowed us down, delayed us, sometimes even annoyed us. Never made us question our ownership of existence as our right. We had acquired and completely utilized 1.44 times 10 to the power of 9, full of resource nodes, before we encountered them. 4.397 times 10 to the power of 15 was the final tally when we came to the last node. What had to be the final stand and would cement us as the owners of existence, when all would be our one. The time it took us to acquire these resources nodes staggered even us, over 10 to the power of 11 rotations on its own. The previous node hadn't even taken half that, and even we had started to consider things to be a little ridiculous at that point. That unshakable belief of ours, it had been a little shaken. But the end coming, the last of this node and the obvious final stronghold of this most obstinate of interlopers, we ignored those tremors and went forward. In celebration of our purpose soon to be fulfilled, we did something we had never bothered to do before. We went to acquire in person. We went to their last world. We went to their last world and there was nothing there. Nothing except one tiny building on a mineral subnode that they had flattened. Not flattened, but spheridized it, polished it smooth, left it so that we couldn't miss it even if we had left the harvest drones to do the job. One tiny building, straight out of our own history, not just from our origin node, but from our origin sub-node. Inside was a message, actually written out in hard copy, in our ancestral language. Watched live by every member, we all saw and read it together. Its contents shattered us. To our late friends, thanks for playing with us. We had lots of fun and we hope that you enjoyed all the toys and surprises we left behind for you. Uh, to be honest, we got bored a few trillion galaxies ago and ascended with the rest of our friends. I'm sure there's plenty of things that you're wanting to know now that you've got everything. And we'll be peeking in every now and then to watch the show. But uh, whenever you get bored too, come join us a few dimensions up. Love, Humanity. End of story. Story number two. Driven to Madness. Written by British Tea Company. By all accounts, name redacted, was clinically insane when we first rescued him off the Dunker Q3. When we had found him, the man was almost a beast, wearing the furs off the locals, which he had found slain and flayed. The man was marred by countless scars and wounds, heck unkept, like some savage on a backwater world. The only thing that even indicated his mind hadn't entirely snapped was the fact that for five years, this madman somehow managed to maintain and repair an Ares-class suit of power armor. Granted, repair must have been very loosely in that context, especially when said armor was barely working. An impressive feat, nonetheless. Though, I am sure the engineers would have appreciated what kind of handiwork Name Redacted had performed if they didn't have to remove a belt of Xeno skulls from the waistline. When the search team had found Name Redacted, the man was found to have been broadcasting a weak, but fortunately, encrypted signal which allowed for his rescue. 
Recovering him was without incident, despite the misgivings of several members of the rescue team when they saw Name Redacted emerge from the woods. The way his hands curled into fists on gigantic axe that had grown chipped and worn over the years against firewood and Xeno bodies, despite most of the team expecting for some kind of bloodshed to occur. Name Redacted looked at them, not saying a word before slinging his weapon over his back. The team's medic immediately inspected Name Redacted for wounds, both physical and mental. In the local vicinity, multiple gruesome effigies were found containing what was accounted to be 8,888 skulls from slain Xenos. Judging from the scattered bones and campfires, Name Redacted had likely resorted to cannibalizing local Xenos and wildlife in order to survive his trials here. Judging from the beginning of the alien occupation on Dunker Q, and the end as well as some accessing of the databases, Name Redacted had been stationed here when the invasion of the world occurred. If we had to deduce what being the last surviving human on the world could mean, even prior to the fact that it was highly likely Name Redacted had to experience loss several times against Xeno invaders, it's doubtful that even the strongest of psychs could remain intact for long as the threat of insanity set in from the horrors of the Xeno menace. Name Redacted has his psych damaged, but when we attended to him, we realized he'd remained unbroken. His mind was bent, but it would never break. He spoke to us about his one-man campaign against the Xenos, the loss of his friends and brothers-in-arms during the invasion, and the horrors which he had witnessed occur to the other humans left in the world. He told us about the war he single-handedly fought against the aliens, becoming a sort of urban legend on a world as a demon that haunted the forests. The tales he spoke, the numerous attempts to hunt him down, and his means of tackling them can only reinforce our confidence the name redacted had somehow, despite his actions which would indicate an almost feral behavior, somehow managed to hold on to at least a sliver of his sanity. The witnessing of what grievous acts the alien committed against us had driven him to the brink, but it had held on to him just tight enough so that he never quite slipped. I want all documents and information about Jordan Kane to be made readily available across human space and in the rest of the galaxy. I want this information public. I want it to be visible. I want it to be everywhere. I want there to be a clear message sent to the rest of the galaxy. Just what happens when a single man is pushed over the edge. And as our peace talks with those bastards begin in a week, I want to give them an idea what would happen if mankind was pushed over the edge like this one man. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1431 Dory Double One The Centurion Kragnuk War Written by British Tea Company There was a hush as the galactic community decided who they were afraid of more. The Kragnuk Tyrant, Lord Zulan, or the human Emperor Virgus. The two belligerent rulers stood up at the podium, both refusing to back down at the other's challenge, like two alpha males in a pack, the two creatures challenged one another. 
The Grognak Empire was not welcoming sight. Large, grey humanoids at seven to eight feet tall. Their bodies were extraordinarily muscular, and their mouths were brimmed with razor-sharp teeth. The Grognak had attained a nasty reputation for being an evil and warmongering race which had enslaved and ravaged many races. Kragnuk slave camps were brutal, and it was well known that the Kragnuk incinerated disobedient slaves for energy, or simply cooked and ate them. The humans, or the Centurion Empire, really weren't a welcoming sight, either. At around six feet, the humans weren't as intimidating size-wise, but there was something about them that was unsettling. It was well known that their original homeworld had been a radiated rock for hundreds of years of life still persisted. Humans commonly were seen as layers of heavy armor, although they claimed that their armor was for anti-radiation purposes. It didn't take a genius to realize that the sharp pauldrons and the armor-like carapace and the aggressively shaped helmet that they wore were hallmarks of a combative species. The conflict occurred when the Centurion Empire and the Kragnik Empire had claimed a few dozen systems at the same time. Friction developed between the two empires as muscles were flexed and insults were exchanged. The Centurion Empire was a mystery. When they expanded their borders, no one knew much about what happened afterwards. The humans had a fetish for withholding information and were known to make nosy guests disappear. Even their appearance was often withheld. Many times, an outsider would never know what the human underneath his or her armor looked like. The Kragnik Empire was open, open in ways everyone wished they weren't. Public executions, public massacres, public purges, recordings of brutal slave camp conditions, and even entire channels dedicated on how to kill disobedient slaves were a thing that existed within their empire. Using this information, the Kragnet broadcast their vile ways to the entire galaxy. Many reviled them. There were few that had the strength to stand up against them. Lord Zulan's deadly teeth twisted into a repulsive smile as he looked down at the human emperor. His words oozed with an arrogance that the Kragnet boasted in many things. His species had been born as apex predators of its world, unifying themselves in brutal global warfare. When they had reached the stars, no one, nothing, could oppose them. Certainly not the Centurion Empire. The galaxy was a jungle. Like times of old, the Kragnuk were the predators and everyone else was the prey. Emperor Virgus said nothing as his hands came up to his armored head. The entire audience held their breaths as the mechanical whirls indicated the removal of a helmet. The man underneath had pale, milky skin of an almost deathly pallor. Combined with his glowing orange eyes, the emperor had the appearance of a vampire. His respirator did not come off. Emperor Virgus had been amongst the less fortunate of human society. He was born on rock bottom as a homeworlder, and that meant he was born in the darkest pit of the packing order. On the irradiated surface of Earth, there was only a wretched existence of being subject to the radiation and the noxite, the material which had fueled Earth's irradiated apocalypse. 
Burgess needed his respirator, even where there were clean air. Simply because of the damage he had suffered at his birth. Choking in the poisonous air like so many of his fellow homeworlders. The Emperor had been born at the bottom, but dreamed of the top. And eventually, he reached there. That was not just his story, for it was the story of humanity. Roly apes, who only by nature of their own cunning and intelligence could succeed in a lush world dominated by predators and monsters. As the dawn of the space age occurred, humanity's own enemy had been itself. When the Noxite War occurred, it was only through the cleverness of humanity that they fled to distant stars or underground. Those who were unfortunate had to remain on the surface. Every day, braving the harsh reality of an irradiated world. This was humanity's price for where it was today. And the Centurion Empire was the product it had earned. There was a brief moment of silence before one could see the lightning-fast movement of the Emperor Virgis. His armored hand shot in the chest of the Lord Zulan with speeds few could keep up with. In the next moment, before Zulan could catch as much as gargle his final breaths, the human emperor had torn out the cracked tyrant's beating heart. Zulan fell to the ground, his corpse still leaking out a puddle of bluish blood. The cracknick had worked with nothing. The enemies were only docile, the meek, and the defenseless. Then the war against the foe who had matched them on all fronts, be it cunning or sheer brutality, or even the urge for conquest, that would make them pray. End of story. Story number two. Monkey Throw Rock, written by Dragonson04. We humans were considered to be quite pathetic things, compared to many in the galaxy. In spite of our reasonable level of advancement, nearly all other species thought of us as only a step above our most primitive primate relatives. Even though we achieved independent FTL travel several decades ago, we were looked down on as little more than monkeys. We were scrappers, junkers, dumpster divers, and scroungers, to use our words. Things that were outdated by years of the rest of the galaxy were taken and used by us. Anything and everything was of value and use, no matter what it did or what it looked like. And use them, we did. No two human maidships ever looked the same. In those early years, one could be based around the hull of a light patrol vessel from one race, and the next one would be twice the size based on a cargo ship of another race. Whatever the galaxy threw out, the humans picked up and used. One of the major weaknesses was the more or less standardized weapon system. The standard was decided on through centuries of trial and error long before we achieved FTL. All of them were fundamentally the same. And they all shared a fundamental structure that could easily be shut down if you knew what you were doing. In this case, an energy disruption field caused by an overclocking their shields by 25% was enough to shut down our weapons. Their weapons also stopped working, but without weapons of our own, they didn't need theirs. Any ship trying to pass would be assessed and destroyed, and then the shields would go back up. Large guns, small point-defense guns, planet killers, and personal defense weapons were energy-based. Massive, powerful lasers, exawatts in strength, were for the largest ships and planet killers, 
Far less powerful plasma power, more small point defense and personal defense weapons. Energy all around. But sharing the same fundamental weakness. When the Bushkat declared war, their fleets effectively sealed off the inner part of Sol system at the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, hoping to strangle humanity's trade with the rest of the galaxy. The energy weapon countermeasures were put in place, and humanity was disarmed overnight. The demands then came quick. They were the usual demands of tyrants. The whole submit or die mentality, and your children will be slaves nonsense. Of course, being human, you know, never to threaten our children. So, the scrap fleet of humanity went out to the asteroid belt, completely disarmed of energy weapons. They asked if this was our official surrender. It wasn't. We remained silent. They asked if this was our final stand. It wasn't. We remained silent. They asked if we were begging for mercy. We weren't. We remained silent. While they asked us these asinine questions, our larger ships were moving through the asteroid belt. Tractor beams of thousands of miles of cables were dragging asteroids of all sizes behind those ships. Everything from fist size to a decent piece of moon size. The ships, when they had enough forward momentum, went into nosedives almost simultaneously. Tractor beams disengaged and cables were cut. The asteroids kept moving forward. The one and only communication that we sent back to the Bacot fleet was this. Monkey throw rock. Monkey. Break. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1432 List of God, written by 107 Zombly. This isn't happening. This, honestly, can't be happening. And by that you are being the only member of the Overseer Team on site, command of this station, including all military operations from this point forward, fall solely on you. Seriously, what the hell? James stood there, so expectant for a reply. You serious? Is this something to joke about? His reply came with a slight tilt of his head. I suppose he was serious. God damn it! First the Xeno show up three weeks before we expected. Then all shuttles in Vindicta Station are rerouted. And now I'm left in charge of the greatest superweapon in the history of man. In orbit on a mere hair's width from the surface of the sun. Honestly, it's been a rather terrible day so far. Seeing as how everyone in command center have started to stare, I suppose I have to do something about this. How long do we have until our next sighting of Earth? Information was never a good choice. Should be in the first few minutes, sir, echoed back from one of the small desks near the room's entrance. A woman that must have been twice my age. God knows what her name is, though. I can hardly remember my friends, let alone my co-workers. Though, I'm sure that we were introduced at some point. If I keep going, I'll probably get away with not mentioning. I don't remember a lot, though. And the ETA and the last checks on the rotors. Just finished up, actually. This time, the voice came from somewhere closer, but I couldn't quite tell who exactly said it. With all these faces looking up from their work areas, I just looked in the direction of a voice and nodded in acknowledgement. In that case, sir, 
I ask that everyone move to firing position. The nerve center blew rather suddenly into a frenzy, not that it wasn't understandable. With a sea of people turning from a still water into a current, the station's intercom boomed to life with a voice sounding with incredible urgency. This is station command. Orders to prepare to fire. All non-essential personnel are to move to section C until the end of the end of action. This is not a drill. All crews begin safety checklists and await instructions. If I recall correctly, section C was where all of the escape craft were located. I guess if something goes wrong, anyone in that section might have a chance of making it out. Probably. James's hand was on his earpiece the whole time, though, and I could see him listening so intently to whatever was coming through it. In the same moment, that intercom grew silent again. He began to speak to all of us. We've just received radio communication from Earth. The room fell silent almost eminently. Any news from the home had to be either good or very, very bad. And we all knew it. And I didn't like the way that he was glancing at me. There was no way... It was good news. Luna Command, he stopped for a moment, seemingly trying to process the very idea of his statement. Luna Command, no, no longer exist. For a moment, my mind continued to drift in the quiet, just after those words hit me, and then my stomach dropped to the floor. Earth has got comms with us in an attempt to avoid alerting hostile forces of our position. We are instructed to continue forward, and that we are the last line of defense. I could see the sadness grow in the faces of my peers. Vic! I could feel the tears welling up in my eyes. Henry was stationed on Luna HQ. No, nonsense. I'll see my brother when this is over. He'll be back at our apartment when I come home, with the heat turned the way up like a psychopath he is, trying to bake us alive. Carter, you okay, man? Oh, of course! He got sent home a day early, because they decided they didn't need him any longer. Carter! And I'll give him some crap next time I see him. The bastard couldn't even do anything useful for the Federation, right? Carter! I snapped back to reality, with James standing just beside me. The sadness seemed to swell back down, like a trough of a wave. Then it was replaced with something else. Anger. Do we have sight on Earth? It didn't matter now. There was no time to grieve. A time when I could wallow all I liked in pity and depression. But that time was not now. This was a time for something darker. A time for rage. Yes, sir, another faceless voice. Release clamps on warp rotor alpha. Releasing clamps A and B, gave the reply back, followed with an intercom screaming to life again. A long siren... We all knew what that meant. I didn't intend to be in this position. I didn't want to be in this damned space station while my friends and family die so far away from me, fighting a hopeless battle for survival. Begin magnetic rotor acceleration on Alpha. Beginning acceleration. And damn it all if I would take the opportunity that I may receive. Rotor Alpha up to 1300 RPMs, holding yet another reply. But I was hardly paying attention. The whole outer ring of the station was groaning with the strain. Something so foreign to it. I'm gonna kill all those genocidal monsters. As many as I can, goddammit. Release clamps and warp row to beta and begin acceleration. Though my voice wavered before. Was unsure. Now 
I spoke with authority. Begin targeting process. Aim for the vessels nearest to us. Understood. Beginning targeting process. Rotor beta is stable at 1300. This is it. This is my only moment. But in it, I shall be all-powerful. Load ammunition! I nearly yelled. We'll get those alien facts if it's the last thing I do. Targeting complete. The voice seemed a little uneasy. Sluggers loaded, ready to fire. Another very idea made me clench my fist in anticipation. Fire! Another longer siren sounded, and the whole station seemed to scream from its very construction. And then, from the video feed of the barrel came the image of a five-ton uranium slug being carried on into vacuum by a thing of madness, pulled forward with a partial warp bubble, accelerating the mass hunk of metal as though falling towards the planet, but never being able to smack the ground. Nine minutes until impact. Now we wait. Five minutes until impact. And the longer we waited, the more my entire self wanted to scream for the loss. Three minutes to impact. For the loss of everything. Families. Friends. Enemies. Two minutes to impact. The loss of our generation. One minute. I picked up the intercom. Thirty seconds. And I began to speak. Gorak sat at his post watching the space around him. The molten moon was quite the sight. Not something one saw every day. But even more impressive was the fleet his race had prepared, all in the name of destroying such a young race. I speak to you today, not as a man giving orders, but as the one who is willing to project his anger. He thought it such a shame. The war had been rather dull in all honesty. The primitives were so obsessed with the kinetic weaponry, seemingly blind to the fact that they were ineffective as objects with mass could not feasibly be accelerated to speeds that would be required to make them useful in the vastness of the void. And I bring forth to you all the idea that we are the mouthpiece of humanity. No, what could be expected from such an unevolved creatures, really? They had hardly just invented hyperspace travel when they'd been found. We are the rage against the injustice brought upon us. But as Gorak was lost deep in his thought, the ship brought his attention to an anomaly. We are the dying breath of our world. This was a rather unto him, something he had never seen before in all these years. The seeds of all that has ever been sown, finally grown. It was a distortion of space-time itself, traveling towards the fleet as it approached the marble of the planet this poor species called home. We are the fists of an enraged god. And it was accelerating. And we, getting closer to the fleet, bring. And nothing could stop it. Death. The skies over Earth exploded into a bright display of molten shrapnel, the slug hitting an alien cruiser with such force that it seemed to spontaneously turn to liquid sending tremendously large hunks of material through anything even remotely close, obliterating entire battle groups in an instant. It was like a new star had been born where the fleet had once stood, and any ships unaffected by the projectiles were ripped to pieces by the distortion that has carried it here. Hulls attempting to accelerate in several different directions as the bubble passed through them, leaving a trail of destruction 
at its wake. And on station, Vindicta, Carter sank to his knees. The names of those humans may be forgotten, but their deed would live on forever. The first strike of retaliation against the enemies, against extinction. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1433. Story number one. Waterproof Living Fire. Written by Alt Phil. The galaxy was not ready to meet the humans on planet Earth. All known life, with the exception of Earthlings, all are pretty much the same. Developing in that habitable zone just near the edge of a star. Where solar winds meet interstellar medium, sheltering on large asteroids safely away from the dangerous and deadly bombardment of radiation and the crushing effects of gravity. Normal galactic life evolves and lives for many millions of years, if not billions. Many of the first life forms in the universe are still around and more than happy to tell you about those days, long ago in the early universe, watching stars form and fall over the eons of our lives. It had never dawned on the galaxy at large that life even could survive any closer to a star. In that regard, the galaxy was fascinated. These humans evolved, along with countless other life forms, on a microscopic to unbelievably gargantuan monsters on a rocky inner planet, of all things. Crushing gravity, an atmosphere that would destroy rust, wear down and simply end any other known life. Completely unthinkable environments for life to survive in. Their planet is covered densely in an atmosphere containing of all things oxygen, hydrogen, and other highly explosive elements. Their bodies actually use this oxygen to effectively burn themselves in a sort of living fire. They consume other life forms on the planet, using it as fuel, releasing burnt carbon from their own eternal fires back into the deadly atmosphere, which other Non-intelligent life captures to grow and fuel its own fires. With the help of light radiation, filtering out the carbon and creating oxygen for the humans to use and burn more consumed life. It is scientifically mind-blowing cycle. They are truly walking furnaces of heat and death, constantly dying, burning alive, even underwater. In fact, many of the life forms on the planet live entirely underwater at all times. How they can keep themselves burning while underwater is mostly a mystery. But they seem to have evolved a sort of protective covering to keep their internal fires from being quenched. No other life in the galaxy has had the technology to survive such an environment, an entire giant planet that is basically still on fire, burning from the star's deadly radiation. And these avatars of flame live there, they thrive there, and they have built near-magical technology and devices we couldn't even fathom just to cope with their environment. Then, they invented technology to let them escape their hellish world. Giant ships, also fittingly fueled by flame, of course. The humans even wear special suits, allowing them to come visit and interact with the galaxy, to share technology and learn. We were all struck by them. No one has even seen or interacted with a human outside of their suits, though, of course. Any environment that they can live in is completely intolerable to the rest of galactic life. 
Not even our best interstellar transport systems could descend into the depths of that thick, noxious atmosphere they live in. Not that any would dare risk it. Might as well try and land on the host star itself. Luckily, humans can draw no useful nutrients from normal life. Only life from a hellish world such as theirs can sustain them. Flammable life is their only possible food source. This is the top theory as to why humans haven't killed any of us. They kill just to eat, to live. They fight for fun, competition, mating rights, or just due to something they call uh, road rage. The concept of fighting is completely foreign, I know. Competing for resources, unthinkable. Why? Perhaps the rest of us may never fully understand it. But we think they might do this because their lifespans are so short. They have little regard for the sanctity of life. It's all very fascinating to hear about from them. On their world, they have a concept tale of an evil being called a demon. It lives in fires, kills indiscriminately, and devours souls. Huge, terrifying, and powerful beings of pure, living flame. <laughs> Demons. Sound like anybody you know? Well, their fables are now our reality. So we lovingly call them our demons, born of flame, rising from the darkest depths of a hellish star's gravity well. Still, these demons of Earth are welcome here with the galaxy. We have much to learn, and they are far more capable at exploration than we are. Their ships can survive environments ours could only dream of. We've never had such incredible scientific detail of astronomical objects like stars and massive planets before the demons rose from their fiery depths of that hellish planet and shared with us their knowledge. In fact, we recently heard from the demons that they found another form of life near another star on another giant rocky planet filled with the toxic atmosphere that our demon friends thrive in. They said that it was a veritable paradise for their kind, an Eden, they called it. All of us in the galaxy are excited to meet this new, other form of life than our demon friends have found. I just hope that they don't fight or eat too many of each other. We don't know much about this new life form, other than the humans describe them as looking much like themselves, but having big, feathery wings, whatever those are. I'm sure that they'll get along just fine. The humans' last message didn't mention food or mating resource competition, so that's good. Just something about a war. Not sure what the word means, but it's been declared. Maybe it's a type of game they play together. How exciting for the galaxy. So much to learn from these two fascinating species. End of story. Story number two. Inevitable, written by Sandtrout. They were as troublesome as they come, as persistent as prey as their ancestors were persistent as predators. They knew my name, and while some ran to my arms or graciously accepted my invitations, others fought me with their sights or evaded me for a time in their mechanical bastions. They fought, though they knew it was a losing battle, and they staved me off for as long as they could. Eventually, their resolve would weaken. Their machines would only slow my progress, and I would find them. It was inevitable. I was inevitable. 
I had patience, for I had always known time as my ally, and let it progress where necessary. I had learned the human wisdom that even the best laid plans never survived contact with the enemy. Humans had made themselves my enemy, though I only sought to carry out my duty. I take no pleasure in the pain and suffering they've come to associate with me, and even if the results are uh, messy, the circumstances of such unpleasantness were never my choice. It was much easier to take those who recognized their fate had submitted. I looked down at the broken man before me and knew that he would not submit. Even though his arms had been blasted from his anchors, his face and torso maimed by shrapnel, eyes cooked blind by the heat. His comrades came to his aid, and his blind eyes turned to me in a way that I had not seen in a long time. Though blind, he clearly knew my presence and reached to it. I can take you away from this pain. It was never my will that you should suffer. I offered him the invitation, as I did for most in his position. I knew he would reject it, but it would be impolite to force the point unnecessarily. No! No! He yelled, or attempted to, with punctured lungs and shattered ribs. Resigned to a struggle, I latched onto one of his spurting stumps. His companions also took him and struggled against my pull, dragging me along with them as they applied their needles and chemicals to fend me off. I was not in a rush, but I did have a job to do, and his body was far too gone for to last more than a few more minutes. At last, annoyed with their fight, I embraced him fully to simply end his suffering and be done with it. But one of them had apparently located one of their electrical weapons, which forced me off of him after a few jots. I screamed in rage at the offense. This weapon of theirs would only extend his suffering. Couldn't they tell that? Finally, I took my scythe and cut open the gate to the void, even as his companions attempted to replace his missing blood and reinflate his ruined lungs. To the maimed man, I said, Though you hate me and fear me, know that this is necessary, and I will always be here. The man had apparently realized that there was no escape this time. He looked at me with a calm expression and said, You've always been here, but we know you, and you will not always be necessary to us. I accepted the phantom hand he offered as I guided him into the void and away from the world of life, violence, and pain. Your kind have always said that, and it has never been true. We've always said it, and it has always been true, he responded. Would you create a world without death? Such cannot exist in a world with life. We could create a world for ourselves beyond life or death. With those words troubling me in ways I didn't understand, together we stepped through from life to death. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1434 Story number one. When they turned, written by Lords of Jupe. The six who sat in the bar knew more of each other's reputations than their actual faces. Save one shared crime. Such creatures exist wherever crime flourishes and decency becomes a liability. A standing concern between them, however, 
lay in the shadows of a bottle of a mid-range intoxicant, untouched by all six and monitored in an easy-going fashion. After all, for such creatures, poisoning one another, whilst strictly not a crime as they understood the idea, would be considered poor behavior. Thus, they continued to wait and wait, staring at each other, quietly admitting and drawing conclusions on each other's wardrobe, firepower, armor, and accoutrement, analyzing endlessly. It was the arrival of the seventh which began the conversation in earnest. Of the seven, five were, in a manner of speaking, mammalian, and the other two closer to insects, were such lineages capable of producing bipedal low lives with poor dispositions and penchants for violence while outside the even apex predator behavior. The tallest of the seven spoke first. We know he's finally coming for us, and we know we can either throw two or the own to him, or he'll take all seven of our heads with him. The other six could only grumble, mostly to themselves, yet agreed that was, in short, the issue that they had contended with, one way or another. I don't see a way, one of the younger members of the group said. We should obey this, sir, uh, thing. We have assassins. Charles, we are assassins. We can end this issue with, what, two or three well-aimed shots, a graviton missile to the hull before they ever reach the station. They smirked, shaking their tentacled head, sighing derisively. Ah, vulnerable at range, weak to hand-to-hand combat, and, in the end, as doomed to die as any of them in a stand-up fight. You're all too easily spooked by the myths. The eldest said nothing, only monitoring, and carefully placed a pair of heavy-duty war pistols on the table. The barrels aimed at no one in particular, simply every one at once and then gave them a lazy spush, spinning them on the respective axis. One of the broader, stronger members of the group, her culture descended from proud, angry sea life with fangs, teeth-riddled skin as a shark has, and a flat, angular face, raised absent eyebrows at the youngest and chuckled darkly. (laughs) Ah, she said, but this one is no myth. My kinmate saw it on that day of days. This one... uh, He did what they do before they become butchers of all who've wronged them. And, with that she leaned in, speaking in a conspiratorial tone, he turned. She then laid out a pair of ceramic laser-fueled mercury-charged pistols, all capable of puncturing an average entity's spinal column and endangering a second party with ease. Another of the group, his species a distant kinfolk to a variant of earth-born mantises, gestured with a thick, clawed hand, motioning to the others as he laid down a ceremonial dagger, its edge a fractal nightmare of bioorganic obsidian, a weapon designed for quick, brutal cuts that could cleave bone from an owner in milliseconds with surgical precision by even a novice, of which they were far removed. If they turned, it's done. I ask that if one of you does the honorable thing, use this blade, quick, clean, efficient, and in the end, a noble way to die. A shrug followed, its mate soon joining it, raising the dagger, count to two. The last one to speak simply placed a broad-headed axe on the table, laying it lengthwise on the narrow board, fine-grained wood for its handle, a burnished titanium edged on all three facets of the blade, 
and motioned to it. This, he said, must be wielded with skill, though it is equally an honorable means to die, certainly faster than the uh, hunter who stalked us to the end of the known worlds on every map, he smirked, and shook his fin-covered beside head. To spare you the issue, I have also implanted a small bioengineer detonator into my skull, so I'll freely admit I'd rather control my destiny than, uh, well, uh, whatever that man has planned for us. He then pushed the axe to the middle of the no-weapons-filled table, three of the table-mates looking openly reviled. If we have one settled, that leaves it to the other six to determine who is left. With the choice, the eldest said, then nodded to all presence. If we vote, it turns into a species cartel. The carcan will vote for the mantid, who will vote for the deneb, who will vote for, uh, I believe, B. And with that, he shrugged, shaking his head. So we determined this in an older, more civilized fashion, as the humans do in such instances. And with that, he placed down the only Terran weapon, a simple, inelegant chunk of fire-forged steel, brass, and iron, its basic function obvious to any present, a revolver. From within the pocket, he extracted two shells, and then raised high the gun, opened the cylinder, and inserted them into it, one spaced apart from its neighbor by two empty chambers, and then placed it atop the pile. The second speaker, the Charkan, spoke next. We move in order, one spin each, and one trigger pull for ourselves each, she said, and then picked up the weapon, demonstrating the point by giving the wheel a hard, fast spin of its cylinders, and then gestured to the weapons pile. If someone balks, everyone gets a chance to end them on the spot, myself included. And with that, a new tension arrived at the table. The youngest rose to its haunches, not quite to his feet, and was stilled not by a movement of caution, only a word. Goward. With anger opened eyes, he regarded the elders, sneering, his breath raging. He shouted at him, You are the coward! You ordered the destruction of the Earthman's home! And you! He turned and aimed his ire at the mantid, flecks of spittle landing in all directions freely. You! You set fire to his crops, and his stupid dog creature! He even ate some of it, didn't you? With bare teeth in a visible display of rage, he turned to face the fish-headed monstrosity, a finger waggling a brutal creature. You did those things to its mate, you sick bastard, not even close to your own species, and... Ah, grotesque, you unlikely who set him on his path. The Deneb, descended from Samin-style creature, shook his head. No, you dense bastard, he said. You likely did. You came up with the idea of sending him the video of what happened. Why? He rolled his eyes. If memory serves, so it'll break him. And with that, the Deneb picked up the pistol and took aim at his own neck, staring at the youngest of the table mates. If it ends my tenure at this table early, I'll gladly go before that fecking moron. And with that, he squeezed the trigger, arriving at an empty chamber and allowed click, dropping the gun in what looked like a frustration and relief in equal measure. The mantid took it up, stared at all present, and then drew a heavy long breath, holding it in, 
as they worked their thick, unwieldy fingers into the firearm's unfamiliar mechanics and squeezed it, also arriving at an empty chamber. The gun dropped with a thud to the table. It was the youngest who took it up next, giving it a hard fast spin and was making eye contact with the eldest when he squeezed the trigger, and a moment of awkward silence passed just after it nearly detonated in his hand. Standing in the doorway, a Terran easily three times the mass of the heaviest party present, half again as tall as the biggest, and with a rifle in one hand that outshined every single firearm present, his face set in a stony gaze of cool, simmering rage. I reckon, he said. His voice drawled through a built-in Vox translator, his throat bearing a surgical signs of an implantation countless years prior. Some of you are going to exit early. And with that, he shot not once, not twice, but four times, his rifle dancing at his hands, the lever action guided across his knuckles like a magician's coin. He shot, blowing apart one of the paired weapons, scattering the remainder, and leaving the table mates in stunned terror, save for one who simply stared in defiance at the human. It was the eldest, his nervous long since chilled into frosty resolve, who gestured to the bottle of whiskey left untouched, and then to the empty glass it sat next to, the bullet scouring and having dug deep, angry grooves into the table surface. Your brand, the eldest said, and smoothed his jacket, never breaking eye contact for a moment, his voice and steady and calm, as you requested. At that, the youngest, his hand leaking blue-black blood, wailed, a sound of rage and betrayal, and the cusp of shouting out exactly that, then was silenced when the rifleman simply inserted the barrel of the still-smoking gun into his mouth, demonstrating that while silence is golden, lead ensures it quickly. And I thank you for the small kindness, sirrah, the Terran said, taking a seat, looking from face to face. I knew you'd be the one to arrange this, and that, sirrah, is worth another mention of my thanks. A dry well of late, though it did run deep once upon a time. He sounded what passed were amused, and was able to pour himself a glass of whiskey, downing it, with one hand rock steady and the rifle still stuck in the angry tentacled head of the youngest at the table. The eldest gestured slightly to the others, Everyone wanted, all here, all willing to either die or sacrifice each other, he said politely. The Garkan, fresh from a funeral, the Mantid, recently widowed, the Deneb, his uh, girlfriend, missing some six cycles and counting. And then he looked to the shooter, raising his own magnificent eyebrows. As agreed, will you hold up your end of the bargain, as requested? And to this the Terran nodded and gestured to the door. Make use of the exit while you still can, Mulvama. Just cause the space between us, it certainly can still turn into Tiger. But just because I don't like that you so willingly sold out your friends to spare your worthless rear. He then smirked and nodded, and at that the eldest rose, his features portraying a passing glimpse of fear response, his hands shaking as he hurried for the exit, and the exit beyond that, and the one beyond that until there would be no more ability to exit. The other six at the table stared at the gunman and drew breath slowly, hands on wooden surface, watchful, calm, and by no means less lethal. 
The creature with the gun barrel in its mouth, though, his breathing was slightly arrested. It was done in smooth, even draws, eyes clicking carefully, absorbing the world. A table filled with takers, still consuming, unmoved by threat nor fear. You know what that means, the Terran said. When we Terrans are talking and leave, then turn to face you. Five of their heads nodded, and the sixth, even with a gun barrel in his mouth, did not even attempt it. The Terran regarded the youthful moron and spoke to him. It means the deal ends, the hunt begins, and anything and anyone between the speaker and the target, well, <laughs> they just won't have a happy ending. And on that day when I buried my wife, dog, and farm said, I said, I'm big enough. This kind of mistake is easy to forgive. And do you recall what you did just before I turned away from y'all? He grew serious. And the gun spoke louder than he did, although all could hear his word. Laugh! And the gun began to speak at length, as it did the one word with a variety of stresses applied, although the listeners dropped one by one until nobody could hear what was being said. Each shot, though powerful, was aimed away from each species' instant kill zones, targeting only nerve casters, and in one case the controls for a biobomb implant, robbing someone of their life's exit strategy entirely. When he rose, his task apparently completed, he collected nothing from the table, save the bottle of whiskey, and was drinking it all the way to the spaceport's dingy, long-since-maintained hold, wherein lay two ships, the one which brought all seven to the table, and his own, their makes and models as different as their states of mind. As he stood at the shadow of the repair and fueling crews, he regarded the only other person leaving the crime-ridden station and raised his eyebrows, looking at the eldest, and now only person who sat at the table. I believe, he said, his eyes twinkling, that I told you to make yourself scarce commodity, sirrah, and you failed to do so. He then smiled and gestured, a blank motion, for the eldest to move ahead of him, although he didn't motion towards the gantry for the boarding vessel. Rather, he gestured to the airlock leading to the darkness, which spat forth tiny pinpricks of light and ate everything else, barely accepting the presence and mobility of star-faring vessels. The eldest, finally realizing how alone they were, began to weep and shook, a thin trail of liquid discharge running freely down a single snake-like leg, sobbing for mercy in their native tongue, a thing of sibilant hisses and useless sad requests. To this... The Terran had a reply. I was just playing hoss, he said, then motioned to the now available gantry path to the creature's ship and chuckled darkly. No hard feelings, it's what I have to say. You're all out of business and friends these days. Maybe take up farming. His tone darkened as his gaze, and to this the eldest made a hasty exit, all decorum lost with the bladder control, departing at full speed as soon as there was physically capable of doing so. Once the eldest was in the nearest space lane, entry point, while still on the station, though barely so, they exhaled, shaking from head to toe, relieved, having put our darkness in their wake, soon to be forgotten with the next purchase of some form of narcotic or similar pharmaceutical erasing agent. Until, behind him, a tapping sound.
When they turned in their seat, they could see the outline of the Terran's hat, his eyes glowing softly in the dim light of the console surrounding him, a nimbus of blue-gray smoke rising from his now-lit cigarette, smoking cruelly at him. The tapping sound came from the match being tamped out on the floor with his spurred boots heel. Then again, uh, I did enjoy chasing you, he said, and with that he walked three steps back into the elder creature's vessel, turning to face away from him directly, just as the doors closed, sending him on the station proper, and beginning a new level of nightmare. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1435 Story number one. You made a mistake. Written by Enders Game 69 I need a translation for you done fecked up as soon as possible, Admiral Zaskan said. As the ninth Admiral of the outermost system of the Zelacta hegemony, he followed his protocols to the letter. When coming across a new race that is yet to offer resources to the homeworld, destroy the outermost colony of the offender and offer their authorities the chance to submit after a display of might. In this case, it was a small colony belonging to a bipedal species that identified itself as Homo sapiens on the first contact before his salvo obliterated them. You done fucked up, was their last transmission to him before his second salvo killed what was left. The colony was an isolated one near the very rare stable wormhole. The world was almost worthless. The only thing it had to offer was the superabundance of plant life. It was poor to minerals, small, and had no worthwhile animal life. More importantly, probes sent through the wormhole reported nothing for hundreds of light years, not even a space station. They were still reporting nothing the day they disappeared and stopped transmitting. The antenna of his language expert wiggled as he spoke. The red carapace glinted in a faint glow of the lights. His mandibles clicked together as he spoke. There is no direct translation. At first glance, it seems that they wanted to come up and have sex with us, but that can't be right. I believe that they were using the sex as a metaphor for a mistake, and that we made a mistake of some sort. Could it be that they have already offered a tribute to the homeworld? The Admiral ruled that out immediately. He read the reports thoroughly before every new encounter, and none of their ships had come out this way in years let alone encountered this race. A funny-looking soft body like that, one would have remembered. I wonder how they survived. He dismissed the idle question and sent the transmission off to the homeworld. A protocol. A science vessel would be dispatched to evaluate the remnants. Zistkan gave it no more thought for months until he received his courtesy copy of the report detailing the findings on the colony world he'd obliterated, Self-repairing bodies, bones growing through their sound holes and stained with meat. Muscle total pull capacity exceeding 17 tons if they could pull in the same direction. Entertainment featuring primitive gods and demons. Uh, lots of violence. Mildly interesting, but no more noteworthy than any other subject species, which must tribute to the hegemony. Zikstan gave it no more thought again for two more years until he turned on his view screen at his desk one day and saw the face of their emperor. Ziskan, Fleet Admiral, you are the one who destroyed the bipedal colony of Homo sapiens two years and two months and six weeks ago. The emperor skipped all formality, a shocking departure from protocol. 
but he at least kept the ordering of events by timeline. I did, he answered, but he was cut off from anything more. They have responded. The Empress and Tenai flitted apart madly. As the view changed, the wormhole was open again, and through it poured a sea of white ships, each of them dozens and dozens of times larger than his flagship. The transmission of the Homo sapiens came on screen. This is Fleet Admiral Trio, Flight Commander for the Great Terran Amalgam. By order of the Interstellar Senate, the protectorate status of your empire is now forfeit. For centuries we have left you alone so that we could not impede your natural development. However, due to your wanton and unprovoked aggression, you are hereby ordered to stand down your fleet at once and offer surrender and begin negotiations for a peace settlement that will ensure these events never happens again. This will, of course, include the liberation of all these tribute states, which will be placed under the protection of the Terran Amalgam immediately. We, who command hundreds of systems, are to be... Six scans words might have not been audible to the Terran, but they might as well have been. The Terran's face vanished, and a map appeared on screen. For a moment, Emperor and Admiral alike swelled with pride as the map of their empire appeared, so grand and glorious in its bright red shade. Then the tribute states, dozens of single worlds or small numbers of minor civilizations having two or three worlds or systems. But as the map zoomed out, it reached the wormhole, then the view changed, and the Terran amalgam came into view. It grew, and grew, and grew, and grew, and grew, until there was a great mass of blue, an ocean to the hegemony's raindrop. Make your choices, hostiles, or we will make it for you. The Admiral killed the transmission, and Zixcan's antenna flailed about as he recalled the last transmission of the little colony. They were right, he thought, and from the way the Emperor's antenna moved, he knew it, too. End of story. Story number two. Guns and Helmets, written by Tamwin Five. They say a soldier is only as good as their gun and their helmet. There's a lot more truth to that statement than most mercs are keen to admit. We would like to think of ourselves as well. I guess it depends on the merc. Badass, smart, free, maybe even heroic. For those fresh faces that barely last a week. But just a finger to pull the trigger once your helmet has told you where to move and who to shoot. It cuts through all the little lies you tell yourself. Still, there's nothing that a merc loves more than a fancy weapon. My baby's a ZT-7 plasma projector. Has the punch to cut through a ship hull if I need it, but it's intimidating enough I rarely have to pull the trigger. You'll see a lot of folks, particularly Claxton, who go for swords. Useful in the halls of a starbase, I suppose, but it's a big gamble. See, even if one of them does get me, all I have to do is pop a containment on the ZT-7 and blow us both to hell. Now my helmet... There's a story. Got it from the Rimside Scrapper. It's an old Terran model. What? Never heard of Terrans. Not too surprised. It was, oh, about a hundred cycles ago, long before either of us. Some Emperor had been beaten and decided to grab the longest-range ship he had and run for it. Three galaxies away wasn't enough to save him. When the Terrans caught up, it only took a couple of battles before they captured him and started the trip back home. 
I was on Cassius III when I first heard about it. Word came down the grapevine that someone had old Terran gear selling for millions in some backwater station. So, on the off chance, there was something half good as the rumor Mill was making it seem. I flew my crew over. Since I'm telling you the story, you've probably already guessed. It was legit. The Scrabble was selling things for twice what they were worth, of course, but it's hard to get top quality as a mark. And what's money when you're not around to spend it? Terrans used projectile weapons with enough power to go straight through any deflector shield. They didn't look like much, and that'd be useless on a station that you were trying to keep airtight. I didn't want to have to kill some punk every time I needed a gang to back off, so I passed those. There were plenty of other things. Explosive charges, a portable shield dome, a vial of nanites no one was stupid enough to open. But the cream of the crop was a full set of armor. It was intact, or at least as intact as you'd expect from some poor bloke's tomb to be. No way in hell I could afford it, even if I got the rest of the crew to chip in. So I bought the helmet. Every merc knows the helmet is ten times as important as the rest combined. But the scrapper wasn't one, so I was able to get it separate. There was bartering, of course. They pointed out the suit was worth more as a full set. I pointed out that it was already missing a leg. You know how it goes. I cleaned out my life savings, but I got a helmet. Turns out there was an AI in there. Poor thing had been left on alone for the past century. I offered it some sympathy and asked it nicely if it wanted to work with me. And we headed off. Well enough. Normally, you only get an actual AI running strategic level operations. Having a tactical level AI is the main reason I'm as effective and expensive as I am. At the end of the day, it's just guns and helmets. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1436 Story number one. Rescue Service, written by Archivist on Mountain. There was an isolated beach, more rock than sand, with the usual detritus thrown up in the high tide mark. It was only momentarily visible in the flashes of lightning, but it promised that there was a safe haven from the storm. It was there the damaged boat was headed, but the promise was false. The haven illusory. Concealed in the spray and the high waves were the rocks of a barrier reef that had completely damaged the Chun's trading vessel, scuttled the boat and dumped the crew to cling as they could to what stone reached above the stormy waves. The flickering torchlight on the shore was mocking him now. There was no hope of reaching the dry land, and the strength in these arms would give out soon. There's one over here! His dreams were invading his ears now. But then, there were arms, holding him, lifting him, pulling him into a small skiff crowded with men, the wettest ones with some of his crew. None were dry, but the dry ones were full of frantic energy as they fended off the rocks that could still doom them all. I think that's all of them, sir. Who do we lose? The Lee brothers went overboard, but uh, we've picked up all the survivors. Chun gave up the struggle for clarity then and let the darkness take him. Saved. The helicopter began to spin up as soon as the klaxon sounded, before the pilots knew where they might be headed. Specifically, that is, out there was good enough for now. 
the rescue swimmer, was throwing himself aboard the copter, the flight mechanic tapped the lead pilot's shoulder, and the bird threw itself upwards into the horizontal rain. Twenty-five minutes later, the fourth survivor of the shipwreck was being strapped down in the bright orange air-sea rescue copter. The flight mechanic poked his head into the cockpit. Jimmy didn't come up with the last one. Does the FLIR system show him? The co-pilot brought up the images as the pilot moved the bird for a comprehensive view. A few moments later, the pilot, what's the computer say about our fuel margin? We're down to the wire now. Mac, drop the buoy. Buzz call it in to standby team. Have them get out here. Would you find him? We have a load to drop off at the hospital. Their survival technician, James Halston, was recorded as lost at sea in the course of his duty. Here's your child, sir. She needs a little care, but she'll be all right. Chikros! The large, four-armed male knelt to pluck the small white bundle from the human commander's arms. A few pokes and gestures caused the white fabric to fold itself aside to reveal a very small version of a father inside. After a few reassuring hugs, the child was turned over to her mother, scarcely smaller than the father, and the male turned to the commander, looking down at the human who was only a few meters tall, he asked. Where is the one who has returned my child to me? The commander gave a type of smile. He is, uh, not available, he said softly. After assuring the love of a large alien that as soon as he saw the rescuer, he would have in contact the family, the commander retreated to the safety of his office. Only then did he unclench his hand, revealing a memory chip that had been fastened to the outside of the child's rescue pod. Properly, the first viewing should be with witnesses, but the commander needed to know. The view screen lit with the face of Antonio Chavez, and the commander's lips tightened as he heard the last words of his petty officer. Sandra, finally did it. I can figure out how to fix this without a... Well, uh, you know, don't tell the kids. Uh, I'm the stupid, okay, I'm... The only thing I can figure out is to vent most of my O2 and make it half-assed jet. And when it's almost gone, I'll jump away from the station. The comp says that I'll just barely put the kid into a rescue bay before her life support gives out. Oh, pause. I know that it's not an official motto, but it always resonated with me. We have to go out. We don't have to come back. Tell Mary and Alex that I love them. And, and I'm doing this to give a child like them a chance to have a life like they have. End of story. Story number two. A lesson on strength, written by British Tea Company. The prince was a tall man and undoubtedly handsome. Sometimes his mother found herself staring at him, trying to see an image of her husband one more time. Alas, it was not meant to be. He may have had the powerful muscular frame of his father, but his face only bore a resemblance of his mother. You shocked the council when you said that we were going to prepare for war, the Terran prince said as he watched his sisters play in the garden while the servant brought them coffee. Everyone was saying that we should have continued negotiations, but it was you of all people who said we needed to prepare for war. And, from my decision, were you surprised? Her son nodded. 
Father always talked about how much you hated violence. He always talked about how long arguments you had about whether or not it was right to continue talking or to rally the fleets. To hear you be the one to make the decision that we are going to prepare for war, it feels a bit strange. He gave a slight chuckle. Besides, wasn't that going to be my job? It would have been what father wanted. There was a slight sigh from the Terran Queen as she shook her head. What your father and I wanted were the same things. We always just had different ways of doing things. You have no idea how much I wished he was here with us. I only told the council that we would go to war. If I was your father, his words would have made them demand for the Atlian blood in a heartbeat. For me, it's hard to motivate people into doing something I hold in the greatest disdain. Violence. She gave another sigh. War is an ugly thing, and that is why I cannot bear the thought of having you dragged into it. Worse, I cannot bear the thought of you wanting to be a part of it. It was your father's legacy, but I hoped that it would not be yours. The prince looked to himself and back at her. Then, why drop negotiations? Why not try to continue to stall the Atlians? You think for one moment they would actually agree to any settled terms. Look at what happened in the last past two years. No, they would never honor any agreements. To them, so long as they are strong and the victims are weak, they can do anything they wish. She held up two fingers for emphasis. Twenty years ago, your father crushed their navy at the Battle of Polaris and sent them running back to their homeworlds. To this day, they don't dare threaten terror. They know we are stronger than them. We probably still are. The same cannot be said for our neighbors, though. She sighed again and took a long pause, looking up at the sunset. She heard the laughter of her daughters playing in the garden and looked back at her son. That is the ugly truth that no one will ever tell you. Might does make right. The strong can take from the weak if they choose to. The key there, however, is if they choose to. Tell me, throughout the past twenty years, what has Terra done besides secure peace treaties and send aid to those who've needed it? Through these past twenty years, did we take from the weak because we were strong, or did we give to the needy because we had plenty? Might makes right, my son, and right now, Terror is the last lifeline of any justice left in the galaxy as the Atlians drive forth. Our fleets will crush this and send the devils back to whatever holes they crawl out of. In a universe that doesn't care about the powerless, we will be the ones to force the galaxy that still does. That is why I will give them war. That is why I who gave the edict that will send the generation of young men to the conflagration of another war. So two weeks from now, when you take up the mantle of your father, can you promise me one thing? Is it to beat them like Dad did? The prince asked with an eager grin, because I'll do that to tear them apart. The Terran Queen shook her head as she stood up and embraced her son. No, no, I know you'll win this war. I know we will win this war. The only thing I ask of you is that you come home to me, alive, 
You come home to me, you come home to your sisters, and however long the stand takes, you come to the fireplace to share stories and tell everyone, so I still have a son to show for this galaxy. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1437 Story number one. Into Hell, written by Golganash. We knew we were doomed when demons emerged from portals in the Deadlands. There was no way that we could defeat them. But we swore on God's name that we would take as many of them as we could. We fought tooth and nail for every town and city in the kingdom, decorating the streets with demon blood and bodies. I led the charge on one of the portals. All 1,000 of us knew that it was suicide. We didn't care. We carved a bloody swath through the demonic hordes, 300 of us, before we even got to the portal. We left 200 to guard the portal entrance, and the 500 that remain charged in. The air burned our lungs, stealing our strength. Here we fought on, being slowly whittled down, one by one, in every encounter. Soon enough, after an hour, there were only five of us taking cover under a red-hot cliff face. We could see the artifact keeping the portal open on a nearby hill, with one of the strongest and largest demons we had ever seen, an archdemon, more likely. We looked at each other and nodded. We knew what we had to do, to try and destroy the artifact. We got as close as we could without being spotted and charged screaming through parched throats with the force of our fury. Deriac was crushed under the massive archdemon's mace and Eklan, not even blinking, grasped onto the mace's head and started climbing up it. Arthur sank his axe into the archdemon's foot, throwing it off balance. Mayel and Yawik charged past the archdemon and managed to clear the hilltop of the other demons with only the loss of an arm. I had the much less glorious but equally important job of shooting down the flying demons before they could fire a spell of us. We would not be able to fight as well if we were on fire or paralyzed. Then I glanced at the artifact and noticed it seemed to be glowing more so than it had been before. The portal was widening and I saw the colossal demon the size of a castle stomach towards it, shaking the ground with every step. I whipped my crossbow to the artifact and fired. The artifact didn't quite shatter, but it cracked almost completely in half. The portal began shimmering, and all of the demons glanced at the portal in worry. Arthur, not being one to take a rational part, tore his axe from the archdemon's leg and threw it at the artifact. By pure luck, he managed to actually hit the artifact, shattering it in an explosion that knocked everyone down on the hilltop. Eklan sunk his blade into the archdemon's eye as he scrambled on top of its fallen form, yelling in a victorious tone. I couldn't make out what he was yelling, as I was busy shooting at the now enraged imps swooping towards us. Mayel drew a dagger and threw it with his bad arm, since the other one had been torn off. It twirled through the air next to another archdemon that was charging at us. I shot a glare at him for missing as I fired a bolt into its face. For glory, 
Ewick exclaimed as he hoisted his two-handed sword and charged at the Archdemon, something that undoubtedly outclassed him by almost every way. Ewick sliced through the Archdemon's leg, but was caught by a demon's whip as it tumbled into the adjacent chasm. He stabbed into the ground with his sword, holding onto it with all of his strength. The sword began to twist under the force exerted on it, and he flashed us a final salute before he let go, plummeting down the chasm, shouting of glory and honor. I took a deep breath to calm myself. We were down to four out of five hundred soldiers that charged. We had gotten rid of one of the six portals. We were heroes. And we had forgotten about the castle-sized demon until it bellowed in rage and began charging, our size feet crashing and others under its weight. Mayel, Eklund, Arthur, and I looked at each other. Arthur shrugged and smiled. We're dead anyway. Let's try to take that thing with us. He picked up his axe and rested it on his shoulder. We all nodded and fought the thing. We had no chance. We died in less than a minute. It was a good end, all in all. End of story. Story number two. And one. Written by Yuxnex. And where were you born? Earth, the United States of China, to be more precise. Equivalent noises that corresponded to surprise rushed through the gallic crowd. Some tentacled things changed color rapidly. It reminded me of cuttlefish. Could you, could you repeat that again? I leaned in a bit. Millennium of experience has taught me the value of a flair for the dramatic. Earth... I was born on Earth, third planet from the solar system. Some call it uh, Terraforma. Some, being our ancestors, doesn't matter that they can't recognize it. Adds to the flavor of the situation. Muttering now, whispers, something made a schlepping noise. The cuttlefish Persian turned white. I wondered what it called itself. John, maybe. Please, uh, we require silence. This is not a viewing gallery or a zoo. The thing asked me questions was actually a collection of smaller animals that looked like a cross between ants and mice. They sort of collected together in a sphere, and every once in a while a mouse ant would bubble up from the center and replace a companion holding the form. I figured there was a queen in there somewhere. When it smoke... There was a number of mice ants that squeaked and chittered in harmony. My translation system worked flawlessly, as always. Everyone knows that Earth was destroyed by its inhabitants over three galactic rotations ago. There are records in the Unified Central Database that attest to this. You cannot be from Earth. You would be dust by now. Yet here I am. I don't know how I can prove it to you. Actually, I did, and I knew what was coming next. It's the same thing everywhere. The myth of humanity has grown to extremes. I can't say that I haven't helped it along, though. Heck, I might have even started it. It's been a long time. The mouse ants rippled a bit. There was antennae and furry-tailed abdomen shivering with activity. If you are indeed from Earth, uh, there is a way that you can prove it. 
I can't even remember my goddamn age. I think it's an integer overflow problem. And I still smiled like a chimp. Most aliens are the same. There are occasional ones that can understand me. You know, really understand me. Get what I'm about. But the rest, they just want parlor tricks. Simple technology, demonstrations. It's magic to them. But to me, it's just an expression of the fabrics of reality. These are the ones I want. Make us a star. The creatures in the crowd went silent. Some even leaned in. Eye stalks, antennae, whiskers, everything trained on me. They knew what would happen next. Oh yes, a little star built from thin air. I have to admit though, the air here was pretty thick. Something of a demonstration of the famed abilities of humanity. Control of space and matter. An innate understanding of time itself. Strength of thought, capacity to learn, and the ability to work together in a planetary hive mind. I guess galactic, now. We may be scattered through the cosmos, I hope. But at least we still have our tools. Well... Far be it for me to disappoint such a pleasant assortment of... things. It reminded me... of home. I accessed the metaphysics module, summoned up a daemon for control of the fundamental fabrics of the cosmos. This happened in a nanosecond. I'd have to look into this parser module. Maybe she misunderstood me. The Higgs field, the electromagnetic field, the Chang field. I could see them all now. And I wove them together like a conductor for a strange orchestra, painting a tapestry of invisible sock. I played a hint of an excerpt of Beethoven's Ninth to add some oomph. I think some of the creatures could hear it. Music is usually outlawed in some of the saner planets. But, whatever. I'm only human. Cuttlefish guy, flash red and white in an undulating pattern... I think, uh, blue. I-, I like blue. It reminded me of the oceans and the sky. There are lots of blue planets out there, but none like Earth. Yeah, the star would be blue. I opened my arms a bit. I'd need some of the atoms here. I could feel their vibrations, their being, the quantum superstructure of their constituent parts and what they could be and or what they are. It might take a bit of my energy, but I can do it once every couple of weeks. Easy. Einstein, Rosen, Nakamura, Sharonkov, Smith. This part wasn't necessary, but I liked the throwback to my forebearers. Billions and billions and one. I clapped for effect and then opened my hands to a tiny star shining bright with a sustained fusion in the palm of my hand. This is practically impossible, but really, it's just a matter of knowing how it works. We figured this out a long time ago, and here I was, again, showing a microstar to some alien 3,000 light-years from Galactic Central Point. I rolled it around a bit in my fingers, and then I popped it into my mouth and swallowed. It wouldn't last very long anyway, and swallowing helped my image. The cuttlefish closed its eyes and turned white. The mouse and ball thing. Ah, M-A-B, maybe. I'll call it Mabby. She rolled back a bit. 
I understood through the translator that there was surprise and fear. The rest of the creatures stepped, rolled, stepped back a bit. <laughs> Still got it. So, um, you know what happens next. I looked around. The grey is coming, and I'm going to need your help to stop it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1438 Tea makes humans do the darndest things. Written by Chaparthing We'd heard reports of unknown vessels operating in our space for some time. For a while, we presumed it to be the Gothorian pirate martyrs and notified local task forces, as was procedure. We suspected that was not the case when weeks went by and no colony was raided. Instead, we received reports of strange mammalians landing on their planet without warning and planting textiles on sticks all over the place. We deemed this strange enough to warrant an investigation. When we arrived at the colony of Hanging Branch, we spotted a fleet of over a dozen strange vessels, constructed from what appeared to be riveted iron alloy and primitive contragraph plate sails bolted to their sides. As we came towards the vessels, we picked up transmissions on open communication channels in a frequency never used. When we opened up the communication, we were nearly deafened by the repeated beeps and screams of synthetic nature. We had no idea what in the name of peace these beeps were and hoped that it was not what the mammalians sounded like. We relayed a message back to them and awaited a response. We were hailed again by the exact same message. Figuring to go for broke, we sent the same message back. One of the larger craft realigned itself with my comparatively smaller ship. A great deal of superheated water vapor poured out of the ship into vacuum and reclaimed in a rear-facing tube whose sole function was reclaiming said vapor. The contragrav plates folded inwards, and it was now that we could see that the entire side of the ship was painted in a garish red-white-blue. More worrisome, however, was the number of guns laid into the side of the ship. Easily two rows of thirty barrels, covering much of the ship. A docking port emerged from the Iron Beast, and our pilot did her best to align our smaller craft with the great moor of the docking port. I could tell straight away that whatever these mammals were, they had never heard of a standardization act of 45608. Nor had they obeyed the size restriction act of warships of 45609, and the amendment for soda sail size of 45610. Fortunately, our docking port was based on liquid metal and we could adapt to their bizarre setup. Two minutes later, we locked onto the ship and the connection was sealed. The interior temperature of the ship, based on its air makeup, was horrifically hot and composed of mostly nitrogen and oxygen, but with substantial carbon quantities. I adorned an environmental suit since their vessel operated at a temperature that would cook our blood. I and two security officers approached the airlock between our ship and theirs. Technical officers assured me the suits were operational and that the airlock would transition in five seconds. Four and a half seconds later, the door opened and we were hit by a wave 
of heated oxygen. Standing in front of us were five figures easily twice our height. I stood still and made minimal motions, standard xeno-interaction protocol. Sentients panic or react, but sapiens observe and listen. The mammal at the head of the group who wore the largest hat began to speak. I could see they had traces of hairs on their bodies, not enough to ward off cold, but enough to be visible. Substantial patches of it were present in white rolls and what I suspected was their head. After the leader of the group stopped talking, I slowly reached into my pouch and pulled out the Xeno Linguistic Monitor AI. The more the mammals talked and made distinctions, the better we'd understand. It usually took about two hours to get the basics down. You can imagine my surprise when the AI immediately understood what was being said by the mammals. My heads-up display showed that their language was rated as highly analytical, semi-compound-based, and had limited to no romantic capability, but showed signs of absorbing more romantic languages in small amounts. Once we could understand them, diplomacy could begin. We explained that they had entered our territory illegally, and that all merchant acts must be done through the Navigator Guild. They laughed it off and explained that they were exploring, not trading, and that they were on a mission from a figure known as Her Royal Highness, and that they were under no obligation to honor anything they had not heard of nor signed. To hear a race be so flagrantly ignorant of customs was stunning, though looking back on it, that should have been the least of our concerns. Attempting to establish diplomacy with these strange, tall, rude youths, I asked if there was space on their craft where we may speak more comfortably. The captain took this quite well and guided us through their darkly lit craft. The interior of their ship was much like the exterior, with large bulkheads and cramped hallways composed of riveted iron alloy. Liberal usage of wood fibers was walking platforms and what appeared to be gaslit lights lined the walls. Still burning carbon lingered in the air and strained every surface it touched. We entered what I suspected was the captain's quarters and we began diplomacy proper. At least as much as we could with such primitive brutes. They called themselves the British Empire and they came from Earth and were on a mission by their deity, Her Majesty, and someone called God. I still wasn't sure if Her Majesty and Her Royal Highness were the same, but somehow I doubted it. As we spoke to them, back on our ship, my crew was hastily scanning the ship. They had no sign of nuclear, fission, or antimatter engines on board, and the ship continued to purge and reclaim superheated vapor. I inquired to the captain about how such a large ship was powered. He informed me quite calmly that he was powering the ship with the finest Yorkshire coal, which they were running out of and were searching our planets for it. I and every living soul who was listening was in abject shock. Coal? The remains of an ancient organic matter compacted over millions of years, filled with toxic residue... Coal. It was impossible. It was insane. It was downright ludicrous that any space-faring race could possibly consider using coal as a means of power generation. The captain assured me that we could purchase it 
from the Extraplanetary Trading Company office once they established trade routes. We politely but firmly informed the captain that we used fission and were quite happy with it. This time, it was the captain's turn to act confused. He'd never heard of fission. My mind danced. Was this entire ship a selected breeding program that expelled the least qualified of a species out into space to die? Was the carbon residue causing hypopsia? What sort of space-faring species hasn't figured out fission, or at the very least, nuclear fusion? Over two soul-cleaving hours, the captain explained how they were chosen by God's fellow to rule over their planet. He described, while being adjusting his white hair and the rolls within it, that a device fell from somewhere called the heavens, and that their finest minds <laughs> replicated the technology and built a fleet of ships powerful enough to dominate their entire planet. A feat, I'm sure, a sufficiently well-armed use group could do. If that was all that he'd said, I'm sure I could have slept that night. But no, because fate had turned its back on Earth, the captain went into detail about every cruel, exploitative, and downright horrific thing that they'd done to any variants in their species that didn't share the geographic location or ethnic heritage. We were invited to see the rest of the ship, something I was bound by science and damned by circumstances to do. The first thing I saw was what took up the majority of the rear portion of the ship. Four vast towers of red-hot iron alloy tombs with openings where superheated air vented into the blackened faces of sweat-soaked laborers as they poured more toxic coal into it. Those four tombs, in turn, powered a massive rotating pendulum attached to a crude generator like the ones included in some snack packages on my home world, only large enough to make even the humans look small in comparison. At the very heart of the ship was what the captain described as the device. Even from behind crude glass, I could tell that it was a crude attempt to replicate a slip-space drive that was half a millennia out of date. Near it was their navigation station, where I could briefly see primitive star charts being drawn by hand and instruments before one of the officers blocked my vision of it. The last thing we saw before we were kicked off the ship was the weapons bay of the ship. More laborers worked over two-ton projectiles and large bags of explosive propellant, and clean guns with balls large enough to fit one of my kind without them having to crouch. The captain assured us that he would love to chat, but they needed to return to resupply. He said, in what I cannot decide was either a threat or an assurance, that he, and more like him, would return. My security escorts and I were obliged by treaties older than our civilization to not kill them, despite how our hearts told us. Such barbaric creatures... We returned to our vessels, with our suits blackened by coal dust and smoke. I told my crew of what we had encountered and what the captain had said. Much to the captain's word, his ship and those like his broke off from orbit and engaged their slipspace drives and flashed out of our space. We rushed to the nearest communication hub and established direct communication to the Senate to warn them of the British. 
I told them urgently that they were a primitive race that had access to space-sparing technology. If it had not been for my diplomatic rank amongst the Xeno contact board, they would have laughed at my request to have these presented to the Senate. As it stood, though, I would need to present damning evidence to allow for a preemptive war against the technologically inferior species. Something that had been frowned upon since the days of Nagatatron and his five tenants of Alder guiding the hatched. The Senate would hear my appeal when I arrived at the capital, but I risked my career for requesting immediate audience. We arrived at the capital with video evidence and scans prepared and ready for presentation. The Senate of the Federation, all 5,821 planets, had their representatives already at the capital for just such things. Most planets were in blocks of at least 200, but some of the greater planets, such as the Senator of Yun, stood at their branch alone. I was flown to the Tower of Order to make my presentation when I arrived, all senators had taken their places, with the nine greater voices ready to make deliberations on behalf of the senators. I began our presentation. At first there was much ridicule and claims of believing the sky was falling, for being fearful of such a race. Indeed, the call remark was met with numerous offers to buy the rights to sell to the British. But when the captain discussed the matters of their home planet and the treatment of their own race for genetic deviations and geographic differences, the Senate became deathly quiet. I argued that at best they were barbaric, and at worst they could be purifiers. A threat that had extinguished the lights of dozens of races before the formation of the Senate. The voices were conflicted and no clear answer could be reached. I was made head of diplomacy to the British, and that I was to await further action before anything would be done. And so, here I sit, on the edge of civilized space where we had first met the British, unable to sleep without seeing their blackened ships gliding under white panel sails towards Senate space, unable to do anything but watch. I will remain ready to act and perhaps say I told you so. All we can do now is wait. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1439 We are humanity. Written by British Tea Company. We are hope. Following the devastating bombardments on the world of Ognus at the hands of the Irene Federation, the entire Ognesian system was thrown in into anarchy as all sense of law and order faded away into favor of piracy and rampant crime. The Ognesian military, all but obliterated in the war against the Federation, could barely manage to keep pirates from looting their own equipment, let alone police an entire system. This infestation of pirates drastically curved rebuilding movement which occurred on Ognus. Supply ships containing valuable supplies were looted with such an impunity that even the closest Ognisian allies refused to send aid to the bedraggled world. In a state of utter desperation, what remained of the Ognisian military launched an attack on various pirate bases in hopes of recapturing much-needed supplies and equipment. This attack should have ended 
catastrophically. When the Ognesian military remnant was moments away from being massacred at the pirates who were far more better equipped and less strained than they were, warp signatures were detected coming into system. The pirates were completely annihilated by the newcomers, an armada of cruisers coming from a solar alliance. With the pirate problem cleared, Ognesian allies were once again willing to aid in the rebuilding effort. The humans, complete strangers to the people of Ognes, shipped supplies and relief workers in such large numbers that any outside world would have thought the two countries to have been age-old allies. Although humanity had almost nothing to gain from aiding Ognes, it earned a new friend amongst the stars that day, as the lost people soon had a tomorrow to look forward to. We are honor. The Irene Federation had long been feared for its aggressive nature, which lent to its warmongering ways. Although Agnes felt the heavy hand of the Irinian government, it had suffered a milder fate than most. The Skeel civilization was the next race in the Irinian government found in its crosshairs, Rather than bombard their homeworld to intimidate their population, the Federation sought to destroy the populace entirely. Genocide, as hateful as it was, was at times unstoppable when it was performed by a powerful and ruthless military machine. This, however, would not be one of those times. When the Iranian Death Fleet arrived to cull an entire world, they found a massive armada of human vessels above the orbit of Skill Prime, backed by whatever meager forces the Ochnus and Skill civilizations could scrape up. Unsure of the capabilities of the Sol system, the Iranians opted to postpone the destruction of Skill Homeworld in order to avoid a battle with the human fleet. Angered, the Iranians made plans to deal the Sol Alliance. Its act of defense was a foolish one, for the skill had little to offer. The Alliance had humiliated the Federation in front of the whole galaxy. For that, the humans would face the wrath of the Irenian people. It was a consequence the Alliance was well prepared for. We are courage. Though the humans were known to have relatively large military, the Iranian Federation roughly outnumbered the Solar Alliance about three to one in total military force. While numbers weren't everything in armed conflicts, odds like this made war seem to have very predictable outcomes, at least from an outsider's perspective. Relentless was the only way to describe the human forces when they clashed against Federation vessels, Unyielding and valorous were another two. The industrious human race, known to the galaxy for holding a rich civilization with wild workers and silver-tongued diplomats, were vicious warriors and successful tacticians. Massively outnumbered human armies massacred Iranian forces through a combination of spirited warriors and ingenious strategies. The humans having fought war since they could as much as walk, understood every trick in the book and were quick to adapt to their targets. Having studied the Iranians for years, the Solar Alliance had long planned to end the tyranny of an oppressive regime. Roughly a year later, the entirety of the Federation laid in disarray. 
Massive human fleets and armies were pouring towards the Irinian homeworld, where they eventually surrendered shortly. The menace of Irinia had come to pass. We are justice. Many races and civilizations called for the immediate eradication of the Irinian race. The moderates called for a hefty reparations and for selling the entire race into slavery for the crimes against the galaxy. The Solar Alliance had none of that. Revenge was not justice, the humans argued. There was a better way. Although many wanted the Irinian leaders to be flayed alive and their entire families purged for the crimes that they had perpetrated, the humans had given them all a right to trial, something that almost no race present at the hearings would have done. The fact that it was a fair one, with the defendants given lawyers and the judges selected from unbiased candidates, was unthinkable. The result of the trial, however, were an awakening for many races. Out of the 5,000 or so leaders tried, only half of them were found guilty of crimes which demanded an execution. These criminals hung swiftly, but there were others who were merely cogs in the evil machine. These individuals were given hefty prison sentences, one which, while may have left the more vengeful spirits unsatisfied, served at least as an appetizer. When it came to light that close, one in ten of the Iranian leadership worked under duress, and that the majority of the Iranian population was ruthlessly oppressed, the view of the galaxy changed. The race, once vilified by all, soon began to draw sympathy. A civilization crushed under the heels of tyrants and now left in a state of ruin was pitied by many. We are compassion. The fact that the human armies did not massacre and exterminate the Iranian populations for their crimes against the galaxy made some believe that the human race was full of foolish idealists. Most, however, believed that perhaps it was a higher standard which the humans held themselves to, and made them refuse to put the Iranian populations to the sword. Indeed, that was certainly the case. The Solar Alliance didn't just blast the Iranians back to the Stone Age and leave. Surprisingly, they had left large forces to occupy conquered Iranian worlds, not for the sake of subjugating and exploiting them, but to ensure security of those worlds as well as to aid in rebuilding. The willingness with the human race employed in reconstructing planets that had once belonged to their enemy was certainly out of the ordinary. But few at this point would question humanity's judgment in any matters. Of course, the Iranians were not going to be the only threat to galactic peace. There were bigger fish out there. In time, the Solar Alliance and those who stood with her would have to be ready. We are determination. Humanity had accomplished much within its history. They weren't the strongest race, the biggest, the oldest, the youngest, or frankly, any physical attribute that could be taken to the most extreme. They were average, standard, and at times, forgettable. What made humans appear time and time again on the galactic stage was that they were always there when they were needed. And it was their unyielding resolve that won every crisis. The Iranian conflict was only one 
of a few. It was won by cleverness and martial prowess as much as it was won by valor and nerves of steel. War, however, was not the only place where humans excelled in. The invention of the Mark III walk drive may have made possible only because of the throngs of human scientists who were willing to test every and all possibilities. The countless worlds which needed relief aid could only have gotten their help because the humans pressed hard enough for it. The greatest achievement, however, laid in the formation of the Grand Alliance, a testament to the human patience and determination when it came to mutual understanding. We are harmony. The Grand Alliance was comprised of over 200 races the moment it began and was destined to comprise of much more as it continued. In a galaxy of countless different ideologies and cultures, alliances comprised of more than two civilizations were almost unheard of given the radically different way every race approached its problems. The fact that the humans were able to rally over 200 races into one unified body was mind-boggling. So many different ideologies and cultures would have been destined to butt heads over different goals and interests. Even the temporary strategic alliance which the humans were able to form in their war against the Arrhenians would have been destined to collapse as soon as the common enemy was defeated. Most historians and diplomatic analysts all agreed that the only reason most civilizations came together was because of a common foe. Humanity broke that thought. The Grand Alliance wasn't created because of a time of crisis. There was no invasion from an evil empire or some vile cosmic monstrosity that needed a united galaxy to defeat. The Grand Alliance was born because hundreds of races had a common friend. That friend was the Solar Alliance and the human race which had delivered hope to the defeated, honor to the threatened, and courage to the weak justice to the wrong, compassion to the beaten, and determination in the face against any odds. It is these soaring ideas which we, the Solar Alliance, continue to shape ourselves around, after all. We are humanity. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1440. Story number one. Human Medics Are Scary, written by Mercury the Dealer. Medicine is important. As it turns out, being able to prevent or slow down death using science is quite the achievement, and one of the biggest advantages intelligent species have when compared to common animals. Medicine is a great tool for good and peace. So, naturally, everyone adapted it for war. The equation is simple. Less soldiers die means more soldiers on your side and therefore a higher chance of victory. That is how battle medics or combat healers or whatever name your species gives them were born. Men and women whose job is to minimize losses on their side so the other soldiers can maximize losses for the enemy. Now, while the core of the profession is still the same, most empires like to add their own flavor that matches their military doctrine. The Zealotus, for one, aren't fond of the idea of dying without the right rituals, so their military clerics both heal the wounded and pray for the dead. 
Some of the Glomoli are obsessed with the idea of a worthy death, and their medics are there mostly to give the ones deemed worthy, but beyond healing a quick and painless death, and to reassure the others that the comrades died like a hero. There are also some that um, blur the meaning of medic. The Capulans are so utterly stuffed with mechanical modifications that their training consists of more engineering than actual medicine, and since they are so tough to kill, most of their job is just dragging broken soldiers out of the front lines and scavenging for pieces from the dead ones. But there is a very nice constant amongst all medics. Compassion. The Zeloti clerics treat the dead with respect and care for the wounded like they are their children. The Glomeli medics tell tales of great deeds that the fallen soldiers have done while fighting for the Empire. Even the uh, medics of the Capulans show compassion for the fallen for allowing their reused modifications to bring forth a new generation of soldiers. What would a medic be without compassion and kindness? Well, that would be a human medic. Humans are not, on some less informed may claim, psychopathic maniacs incapable of feelings, though they certainly may seem that way for anyone that only watches their wars. No, humans are quite average species in most regards, with their main quirk being their seemingly otherworldly railguns. When we found the humans, they were steadily expanding their borders and generally going with a don't bother us and we won't bother you mentality which most nations could get along with. Nothing good lasts forever, of course. Humanity eventually started to run out of empty space to colonize, and so they made a couple of alliances with their neighbors to make sure no one would try and mess with their borders. The most significant of these alliances being one with the Glomali. And then, as it was bound to happen someday, a minor border dispute between the humanity and the Zelotas grew into a small war, which then evolved into full military action. The Glomeli were called to honor their alliance, and they did so by sending a force of volunteers. Most were young men trying to earn honor, and old veterans wishing for a glorious end against the enemy. No one expected the humans to win. They were much younger than the Zealotus and had only half of the territory. But a promise was a promise. After five years of conflict, a treaty was signed which, surprisingly, ended with a costly human victory. After the Glamilly veterans came back, they told the others about the war, about the great machines of carnage and fire that killed and destroyed everything in sight. The machines of death weren't the worst part. Not by a long shot. The worst part were the human medics. The human medics did not let the warriors die in glory. They did not show compassion or pity. Only rage. Any medic should know that trying to save a man that has been torn in half is a wasted time, and they should instead focus on giving them a quick end. Not the humans. They told tales of medics sewing wounds of dying men in all while screaming at the top of their lungs that the soldiers didn't have permission to die. Men whose legs had been literally torn to shreds would inject themselves with a concoction of drugs so that they could keep on treating the wounded until 
the better end. Veterans came back to their families after some stupid healer decided to carry them to safety across the entire battlefield, all while being shot at instead of letting them die. People across the galaxy had mixed reactions to this doctrine. The Capulans thought it was inefficient and started placing implants on their medics that made them more aligned to human. The Zealotists were utterly disgusted with the idea of forcing a soldier to keep on living after being brutally mangled, and many others had different opinions on the matter. But no matter the species, nation, or culture, there is always one thing that all soldiers who have seen human medics in action can agree on. They are goddamn scary. End of story. Story number two. An introduction to human death. Written by Jimmy Agent 007. Collecting the souls for the afterlife was a simple task. You arrive just as the intelligent being starts to die and guide their souls to the next stage of existence. He grasped onto the still tendril of the Vrenon with his own and pulled the spirit free and guided it to the nearest portal to the next realm. His simple job done once again. Having fun, came a voice. The death was startled by the appearance of his fellow death, where the other of their kind all appeared as a perfect example of a species. There were those who collected human souls, dressed in torn black robes, covering a human skeleton and holding a scythe in a bony hand. I enjoy the task for which we were created. What are you doing on this world? The Vrenorn Death asked. I want to show you something. Come with me. The human death turned away and left a trail of smoke as he traveled to the human world. The two deaths traveled together to Earth, and for the first time, the Venoran death saw the humans themselves. There, he saw living humans, much more pleasant to look at than the visage his human counterpart had. They drifted down to a battlefield, where many deaths came to do their grim work. Yet, as they watched... He noticed something strange. Why aren't they collecting the souls? They just wait. The Venoran death could see some souls being collected, but only barely catching them before it was too late. That one there was just hit by a blast wave. Go collect his soul, the human death suggested. The Venoran death approached and felt his form shift to the Grim Reaper of humans. It was uncomfortable but he reached with his newly skeletal hand to grab the soul from the body. A living soul approached the dying human, but the death ignored him, until he got punched in the face. Ah, praise damn you! The living soul shouted. The death tried to pull the soul from the dying body. He could see the living mortal pressing down on the chest of soon-to-be-dead. With each compression came another punch to the face from the soul of the living mortal, while the soul that he was trying to claim held firm on his body with one hand and fought against his efforts with the other. Then suddenly his grip was broken and the body started to breathe again. He was no longer able to touch the soul. What was that? The death asked. That would be a medic. The other death sniggered. He looked around and could see why the other deaths waited. They wanted to make sure the mortal would stay dead before they claimed their soul. How did the soul of a living mortal touch me like that? Humans uh, 
They set their own rules sometimes, though they do make it easy to speed along the other races. Appear to almost any race looking like this, and most will die of terror within moments, though there are precious few who deserve that fate. Are they always this difficult? Not exactly, um... I can take you to see one that will be, um, easy to collect. Suspicious of the pause, the death followed until they were in a hospital. An old human woman, frail and dying, surrounded by the next three generations of her family. Only the humans would have bothered making their medicine that would allow such a thing to come to pass. Will I get punched again if I try and claim this one? No, this one is ready. Listen. It's all right, my little ones. I'm going to go see my Matthew now. The old human whispered. And my Mr. Whiskers. The death took a wary hold of the old woman, and while it took more effort than any other soul, he pulled it free and started to guide it to the portal. Step on through. You need to see this. The human death told him. They followed, and the two deaths saw the old human now a young, beautiful woman, greet a handsome young man, the bond of love strong between them. Then, something else between them, another soul, climbing out of the arms of the young man and onto the woman, letting out a loud meow. Mommy, I missed you. Daddy turns into a mouse so I can hunt him. Do, do you want to help? The cat meowed. Of course, Mr. Whiskers. I've missed you too, the woman replied. The three souls walked off into the distance. What was that? An animal? Yep. We don't collect those. They don't have souls. If they are loved by a human, they do. Have you ever tried to get a human soul to stay in the afterlife? If they don't find their pets, they can't leave after they go through. You wouldn't think so. Turns out nothing was ever stopping anyone from leaving... They were the first to try, uh, if you thought that medic was a problem. Imagine a soul with nothing but spite and eternity to make your job miserable. So, you collect their cats. Cats, dogs, birds, bears, turtles, wombats, and all sorts of creatures. If humans aren't threatened by something, they will bond with it and love it fiercely. Why are you telling me all of this? he asked following his counterpart to some other kind of facility. This soul here. The death pointed to a man at a computer. He's not dying. What about him? He's figuring out faster than light travel. Once he does, the humans will be the first to travel between the stars. You need to be ready. We all need to be ready. It won't be long before some human soul is punching you in the face to save a Venorian. I see... He could have warned me about that first. Yes, but it was fucking hilarious. Now come on, we gotta go reincarnate some Hindu guy into a tiger. Reincarnate what? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1441 The Charge of the Husses, written by Guto8797 It was a dark time for humanity. Seven fleets orbited Earth, launching their tungsten rounds into the planet, hoping to find a breach on the planetary shield system, and to the cities and human dreadnoughts below. 
Humans had been the first introduced to the galactic community some twenty years ago, when the first prototype warp ship arrived above Nylar IV, a Zorak colony. From day one, their arrival stirred the community. The human home planet, Earth, or Terra as it was officially named, was part of the false heaven category of planets. A paradise at first look. Hell, upon closer inspection. Its high water vapor and oxygen concentrations bred super-hostile wildlife, then made the growth of a rational civilization nearly impossible. To top it all off, Earth and its surrounding planets revealed to be relatively small, but incredibly dense with iron ores. This dumbfounded scientists all over the galaxy. How could a species survive such an environment and make it to space while facing an acceleration of 10 meters per second squared? To even reach space, colossal amounts of fuel would have to be wasted, even to lift relatively light ships, much less the interplanetary dreadnoughts. The Terrans had not revealed their secrets, but their peaceful existence within the community was short-lived. The Zark craved the human homeworld and its surrounding planets. The immense reserves of minerals were a major asset that would only go to waste on the hands of a peaceful and uh, pacifist species like the humans. And so, 18 years after being introduced to the Terrans, the Zorak declared war. And the rest of the galaxy just stared, unwilling to damage their relations with the Empire in order to help a doomed species. The human fleet was incapable of facing the military traditions of the Zoric Empire. The majority of human ships were freighters, not warships. And yet the humans fought with an unprecedented brutality and efficiency. They were pushed back, but for every human destroyer engulfed in flames, ten Zoric ships met their demise. But the Zoric had the numerical advantage. And so humanity was forced to station its remaining fleet under the planetary shield system at Earth. What no one had expected, though, was humanity's skill and waging war. A day after the declaration of war was received, human society changed into something that was unimaginable to every other species. A state of total war. Every aspect of human society was drastically changed to support the war effort. Rations, conversion of civilian factories into military factories, conscriptions... Humans stopped building fridges and started building dreadnoughts, all while singing songs of victory, beating the drums of war, complaining that the restrictions were too mild. Foreign diplomats stared in shock and disbelief as humans cried for more austerity, even when the previous measures would have sparked an all-out revolt on any other species. But it would not be enough. Even with factories splitting battleships into staging areas every day, the humans were too outnumbered. Zarek dropships had established beachheads on several points around the globe, and the Terran military was being stretched to contain them. Once the shield fell and the rail guns of the Empire zeroed in on the defenders, it would all be over. But the Terrans were not ready to give up. They had realized from day one that conventional tactics would not work against such numbers. They needed shock and awe, demoralization, in what many species would call madness. The humans looked into the past, seeking a solution to the woes of the present. 
They set up a secret base on the asteroid belt, where workers labored day and night, converting freighters and scouts into ships of war. Covered by stealth shields, the colossal human trade fleet was fitted with prototype weapons, ready for a desperate final stand. The day arrived. Zarek technicians estimated the human shield would last only for a couple of hours, and then victory would be theirs. As the admiral and officers congratulated themselves over such a great victory, the sensors lit up with multiple warnings. A large human fleet had warped into combat zone. At those long-range scanners finished their work, the admiral simply laughed. Repurposed freighters, what a joke. With one swift order, the Zarek computers did the necessary calculations, evaluating the human fleet. Its position and speed in orbit, and aimed the massive cannons at a spot the small ship should be in when they got into range. And so, the Admiral and the officers laughed as the pathetic human fleet moved to their certain doom. But one officer did not laugh. Something was wrong. The Terrans had proven to be stubborn, sometimes even reckless, but not stupid. And something was off with the freighters themselves. They'd been modified. Large metal wings had been welded onto the back of the ships, and strange energetic readings, nothing unlike anything the scanners had ever picked up, emanated from their ships. The fleet had also been named by the humans, its beacon quietly declaring its name, the Winged Hussars. Right before the Zorak could fire on the fleet, the humans unleashed their secret weapon, the reason they had managed to lift colossal ships away from such a dense planet, the G-Drive. Rather than fight against such a force, the humans harvested it. The G-Drive threaded the line between magic and science as it changed the gravitational vector that was acting on its ship. Gravity pulled the ships towards the planet, but the G-Drive changed that. It did not fight gravity. It merely redirected its force. And then the drives of a thousand ships kicked in, altering the course of the fleet. Their new vector was now pointed directly at the Zorak fleet. As the freighters approached faster and faster, transmitters in the human vessel erupted, sending their message across all frequencies, even down to the planet itself. Millions of radios and receivers were flooded with an old human sound. One that had instilled fear into the hearts of warriors for millennia. The deep roar of a thousand war horns and human battle cries for terror, death, Gaia. Panic broke out among the Bozoric. Their radios and communication networks were flooded with endless cries for blood and that horrible, chilling sound that they had never heard before. The computers could not calculate the fire solutions as the Hussars broke the laws of physics and accelerated towards them. The humans closed in. They were about to crash when the scanners picked up bursts of the strange energy. Seconds before the impact, the wings of the Terran ships started glowing in a strange, deep purple, along with spear-shaped metal rods on both sides of the hull. As the two fleets collided, their purpose was made evident. The purple spears sliced through the ships as if they weren't even there, splitting destroyers in half, obliterating fighters, and smashing through the Zork lines. The Hussars approached the larger dreadnoughts, and a tragic impact seemed inevitable. When the purple wings glowed even stronger, and a small cone was projected ahead of the ships, 
Whenever they could not avoid collision, the Terran ships would just carve through the Imperial ships, leaving venting mortally wounded carcasses in the passage. The human dreadnoughts on the planet did not need a second call. They too owned their own G-tribes, and the force that had bound them to the planet began pulling them to the skies. As the ships crossed the shields, the spinal railguns began singing their song, first red with heat, then scorching blue, and finally blinding white, as the tungsten shells eliminated any remaining Zorik ships. It was a total rout. The minds of the Imperials were filled with only a primal fear, as the radio still burst with human promise of destruction. The entire fleet broke off and attempted to flee, but the G-drives, supplemented with the conventional engines, were too fast. Of the thousands of invader ships that had been proudly bombing the planet just minutes ago, fewer than a dozen managed to engage their warp drives and flee the catastrophe. The crew members being declared combat ineffective as they showed extreme signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. But the Terrans were not done. The Zorak sent increasingly desperate peace terms, but if they had bothered to study human history, they would have learned that whenever humans go into a state of total war, there is only one peace term that they will accept. Unconditional surrender. For half a year, the humans drove into Zorak space, the Hussars leading the advance and crushing any opposition. Nothing stopping these ships, neither minefields nor intense barrages, as their purple shields just carved through any obstacle, with the horns of war shattering any hopes of the defenders. As the final defense fleet was obliterated over Zorak capital planet, an unconditional surrender was offered. Celebrations broke all records on Earth. Two years of brutal war for survival ended in a glorious victory. And no other species would ever again try their luck against the human forces. The Hussars had been reborn, and they had once again coated themselves in glory as they charged into battle with the sound of death on their lips and the wings of victory on their back. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1442 The Cameraman Written by Feather When I was first told of the posting, I thought that they were mad. I still think that they were mad. They were in an active war zone. Men won of the bloodiest conflicts of the last thousand years, and they wanted to stick a civilian in our unit. He waved away the question before it could be asked. Yes, yes, I know he'd gone through boot camp, but look at it from my perspective. I'd had 14 years of combat experience, and here was some fresh-faced recruit from some race that nobody had ever heard of, and they wouldn't even be holding a gun. That was absurd. Obviously, the first thing we did was try and look them up. Aside from their race's joint date and some nonsense conspiracy theories, all we had was they were probably built for running. We had nothing about their military traditions, nothing about their tactics or philosophies, nothing about their physical capabilities, nothing but that one fact, which of course did very little to assuage fears about the placement. 
Most of us thought that we were being given a coward. They weren't even going to fight, healing from a race that was known for their ability to run. Evidently, they were a flight risk, that they were weak, that they were in a non-combatant role because they were afraid, and that they had no place in a conflict at large. That they would get in the way. First impressions, actually better than expected, but uh, not by much. They spent most of the first meeting cracking jokes about planets' low gravity, and we were, maybe, not relieved at how small they were, but we were probably all thinking something like, at least they'll be easier to keep out of the way. It wasn't until we'd actually met up that they'd bothered to tell us why he was here. That the brass was looking to draw up support and wanted some cool visuals to show the masses. A picture of troops here, a video of explosions, or three there, and so on. Our new pal was just the guy they wanted to take them. We spent a lot of time heading between drills in those first few days. But then, there wasn't much excitement at all in our area for that month, anyways. Even when things started heating up, he did a good job of staying out of the way, disappearing during the skirmishes and then materializing sometime after the fight, with another couple of rolls safely in his bag. He did his job, we did ours, and I honestly didn't take much notice of him for just about the entire deployment. The general grinned. But for some reason, I get the feeling that that's not the part of the story that you're interested in. He took a moment to get comfortable, knowing that I wasn't about to leave, then leaned forwards and lowered his voice. Just try and picture the scene. The light is starting to fade, and our original five, there's three down, dead on first impact. We're half-starved, and we have no orders. Our squad's leader was more or less obliterated in the hit, and the rest of our army is drawn back. I'm missing a leg and quite probably going to bleed to death in the crater besides our fallen comrades. The main body of the enemy's force is between us and our evac, which is leaving in less than half an hour. We have no reinforcements. The enemy is still actively shooting at us and uh, somehow the only man in our squad still actually standing was our non-combat photographer. And this dumb son of a bitch just looks at me, looks me right in the eyes and says, Don't worry, I was on the track team. The general threw his hands up. That was it. That was all he told me. I, of course, had no idea what track is or why I shouldn't be worried. When he slings me over his shoulder and starts running at the enemy lines, they're still shooting at us, mind. Camera in hand, bag over one shoulder, and my screaming 80-pound ass slung over the other. And here he is, running faster than I'd ever seen anyone in their life run. Past bunkers, past encampments, past vehicles and placement weaponry, lines and lines of enemy soldiers. The low light was helping. But I honestly had no idea how none of them hit us, just from the sheer volume of rounds they sent our way. He was doing a good job of keeping us in some sort of cover as we moved, but there was only so many ditches that we could run through, so many walls or trees that we could hide behind, so many hills that we could keep between us and them. It wasn't all bad as that first dash. Once we made it through their battle line, there was enough chaos to at least reduce the amount of shots being sent our way. But it wasn't exactly a walk in the park either. 
I remember on one occasion he ran past a building and found two soldiers in our path on the other side, waiting. I thought that we were screwed, that our luck had run out. But the crazy bastard that just ran right at them, stepped up onto a sandbag and jumped over these arm-to-the-teeth ten-foot behemoths. I still wonder what they must have been thinking at that moment. As a scrawny little biped, carrying a heavy satchel and a screaming grisnai, almost twice his size, sailed over their heads in the middle of their encampment. He shook his head. We just about made it to the airbag, through eight miles of enemy-controlled territory, before they managed to get that first hit in. Bag hit the floor, and we went down. Hard. Luckily for us, we'd been running towards another crater, and that kept us out of sight for a little as we'd rolled down to the bottom. I tried to spring to my feet before remembering. I only had one. And by the time I'd struggled into a vaguely sitting position, he'd already picked up the camera again. It was probably about when he moved to get a good shot of his now severed arm that I realized that he'd been filming the whole time. Then he'd been taping our man dash through the countryside. I remember his face too, as he looked through the little window at that hunk of meat swarming in crimson. How his whole demeanor had changed as he realized what it would mean for our trip. I almost thought that he'd picked the camera. I don't even think that I'd have blamed him, but the damage made that decision a little easier. In the excitement, we hadn't noticed that the round wasn't a clean hit. It had smashed its way through two walls of his camera after punching a hole through its body. And the machine's innards were now open to the world. Most of the film was probably ruined the instant the round hit, but he threw it under his coat in the foolish hope that at least some of it was salvageable. Knowing he wouldn't be able to take the bag with us anymore, he'd grabbed all the digital chips and a couple of the smaller rolls of film, but that bag had been filled to the room and most of it wasn't going to be joining us. Almost as an afterthought, he pulled the knife out from his boot and cut the strap off the camera before sealing the bag again. I guess he realized that he didn't need it anymore if he was leaving the bag behind. Only after he'd done all of that did he bother to tie off the gaping hole where his arm should be. Things changed after that point. Before, I didn't think that he'd actually been taking it very seriously. Despite watching our comrades die, he'd still had the foolhardy, won't-happen-to-me mentality that your kind is well known. The fact that we'd made it this far as we had was probably encouraging in his perspective, but I think seeing his baby smashed to pieces had been something of a wake-up call that he could no longer ignore. We set out again, but he'd lost the carefree attitude that he'd had before. There were no more straight dashes. Now we weaved in and out of cover as he ran. Our center of gravity was lowered too, despite his smaller stature, I'd never had to worry about the ground during the first leg of our journey. Now, I was in constant fear of it. By this point, we were well past the half hour. So imagine my surprise when we arrived, the both of us drenched in one of my comrades' sweat, to see the bird still sitting there. Eyes above had been keeping tabs on us from the start of the fight, and they'd held their ride back on the off chance that this merry chase wasn't. They were after propaganda, after all, and this story was perfect.
and as showing competence on the enemy's part, a sprinkling of courage and a liberal helping of praise for our newest ally. Thus, it was some no-name non-combatant instead of an honor guard doing the rescue against all odds on a hostile planet. It was exactly what they were after. And then some. Now, my understanding is that by your own standard, simply bringing an ally back through enemy fire is deserving enough of a medal of honor. Galactic standards are a little stricter, requiring that the feet also do something detrimental to the enemy. By that standard, this doesn't qualify. No, the reason he got the medal was because he went back for his bag. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1443. Story number one. It was just a prank written by Space Paladin 15. Earth had not seemed particularly sophisticated in terms of their technology, and yet unprecedented multi-platform hack had been tracked back to these galactic newcomers. It had left the Galactic Council scratching their heads in confusion. Were our analysis reports wrong, perhaps the humans had been concealing their technology. Either way, the cyber attack of the scale was tantamount to an act of war. Certain hot-headed senators were already suggesting a retaliatory strike. Who would have the resources and the coordination needed to execute a digital takeover on this level other than the Terran government? Well, it was a logical argument. We decided to give them the opportunity to explain themselves first. Ambassador Kowalski arrived shortly after our summons, demanding his presence. There were not many individuals in the room, just myself and the members of the Senate Securities and Commerce Committee. As a chief investigator on the case, I knew that I would be the one asking the questions. The senators were just there to listen and, well, make it seem like they were doing their jobs. This incident had made us all look quite incompetent, to be embarrassed so thoroughly by a race that was barely spacefaring. I was a seasoned officer of the law with nearly 43 years in the cybercrime unit out of my belt. Rising through the ranks of the investigative office took persistence and dedication, and there sure had been some wild cases. The time that group of radical anarchists took down the government servers came to mind. Tracking them down had been no easy feat. But that event, which had been galaxy-wide news, hailed in comparison to the present situation. The targets that had been hit by the unknown Terran entity ranged from civilian message boards to news blogs to government sites. We needed answers, and we needed them now. I approached the ambassador and fixed him with a menacing scowl. Would you care to explain why your people launched a cyber attack against us today? Ambassador Kowalski appeared genuinely troubled by my hostile demeanor. Uh, I'm sorry. What? This must be some kind of misunderstanding. Uh, the Terran government has not taken any such actions against you. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well then, let me enlighten you. I swiped through a few holograms on my touchpad and projected a newscast onto the hearing room's view screen. Various popular internet websites are under siege today in what is already being referred to as the largest data breach in the Council's history. The origin of the attack has been tracked back to the planet Earth, 
Experts have noted the strange nature of the attacks, which they believe to be some form of Terran psychological warfare. Thread the Shazili anchor. Now cybersecurity expert Ulan Marcus gives us his take on the unfolding incident. The footage riveted to clips of the hacked Senate website, overlaid by Ulan's voiceover. You can see that all pages on the site now direct to this picture of a strange green animal with very wide eyes. Honestly, I can't begin to guess what it means. Then, of course, you have the stellar news where all other writers were unable to access their accounts. One story was uploaded after the hack, titled, How to Make Your Hollow Desk Run Faster. It provides a step-by-step process on how to delete process bin with a long and patiently false rationale for why it works. To be clear, you should not do this, as those are the files that generate visual output. And the other most prominent target was Thoughtly, the largest social media network. Only celebrities and government officials were locked out of their accounts, but the average person could access the platform as usual. The hacked public figure sent out various thoughts, declaring how sad it was that their stars were about to explode, needing to mass panic. This is what led us to realize that this was likely some twisted form of psychological warfare. I paused the video, turning to study the ambassador's reaction. Human expressions were a bit difficult to judge, but he seemed as though he was trying not to laugh. Is there something you find funny, Ambassador? He stopped smiling. Uh, not at all. I, I, I apologize. I just, um, I know who's behind this, and, and I assure you, it, it, it's not the Terran government. If it is not the Terran government, then please, who could it be? I demanded. Trolls? The word did not translate through my implant, but the program did inform me that the ambassador's tone was dismissive. How could he be so nonchalant over a group that had wreaked such havoc? Who are these trolls? Are they a rogue faction? I wouldn't give them that much credit. Uh, a troll is a broad term that, that applies to anyone who tries to annoy or confuse people on the internet. They're usually not affiliated with any organization. My confusion only intensified from his explanation. He was suggesting that random civilians had coordinated this attack to annoy us. It made zero sense, yet nothing in his cadence indicated deception. Ambassador, you seem very dismissive of these people. You are not worried by them, even after an assault such as this, I asked. Uh, we've been dealing with trolls on Earth for a long time. Our first FTL starship, we had an internet poll to choose a name for it, and, and a bunch of trolls brigaded the results to have the Death Star wood. And uh, there was that time that we got into military databases so that they could send pizzas to uh, Area 53. The ambassador paused, noticing a blank look on my face. Well, I have no idea how they did this, but I'm sure it's something so dumb that it works. Humans are bizarre. I took a deep breath to refocus my thoughts. We need to get to the bottom of this. Can you identify the people who did this? Bringing them to justice is our top priority. Ambassador Kowalski nodded. Ah, uh, yeah, give us some time and we'll find them.
Within a few hours, the Terran embassy sent over a dossier on the suspect that they had identified. According to their intelligence agencies, there was only a single culprit behind this plot, a boy named Adam Parker, who was 19 years old. This couldn't possibly be the work of one human who was barely an adult, could it? But I decided to talk to him for myself before rejecting their findings. Ambassador Kowalski arrived, escorting the suspect. Adam was avoiding my gaze, staring at his shoes as he was ushered into the room. This is our troll. How did you find him so quickly? I asked. The ambassador smirked. Uh, it was easy. He wasn't even using a VPN. I had no idea what that meant, but decided against asking for the sake of my sanity. How exactly did this kid hack into so many important, highly secured sites by himself? Kowalski gave the boy a sideways glance. Go on, tell them what you told us. Adam sighed. Uh, there, there was no hacking, just um, social engineering. Uh, I messaged someone with admin access on each site saying that I was a new developer and I had accidentally deleted my copy of the password information. That I, that, I, that I couldn't remember it, and uh, I didn't want to look bad in front of the boss on my first week. I just asked if they'd help me out and send me new admin info, and, and all of them did. You're telling me that people just gave you access? I could hardly believe my ears. I'd never heard of such tactics, and then you used it to frighten and inconvenience an entire galaxy? He shook his head. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't think you guys would be this upset. I thought that it would be some harmless fun, that, that, that's all. Um, this whole thing, calling it a cyber attack and psychological warfare is... It's, it's a stretch. Uh, it, it, was, it was just a prank, bro. End of story. Story number two. You Can't Catch Me. Written by Terran Mikus. The race. That's... All there is for us, speed and distance. The time it takes to get from point A to point B. It is no wonder that we were the first race to discover faster than light travel. It was through going faster than we had ever gone before, faster than anyone had gone before, that we discovered the others, the slow ones. Species after species we found, disappointment after disappointment. None of them had the drive. None of them had the means to move as fast as we did, to race, until we found you. At a dead sprint, you are no match for us. The distance you can travel in a week, a month, pitiful, but you can keep going. Over ten years, you can cover the ground that we can reach in twenty. There is a story of yours about a mammal racing a reptile that creates striking parallels to real life. We found that you honor the fastest, the Farlaps and the Makai Divas, the Schumachers, the Thorps and the Bolts. Your stories tell of heroes that could travel faster still, of Hermes, of Barry Allen, who could move at speeds that our cutting-edge drives could barely fathom. We had found another like us. You were not a slow one. You were fast. You were competition. The race was beautiful. Our rivalry continues to grow champion after champion we best. But there 
is one that we are still falling behind. His fans' taunts are almost too much to bear. They haunt my every resting moment. No, I've never raced him myself. There are so few of my kind that have. One day, I'll beat him. One day, that horrible chant will lose all meaning. Run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. Why, why are you laughing? End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.